Greenwich Village, June 28, 1969. A raid on a gay bar, common in the days of the closet, turns bloody as patrons bash back against police. Across town, an ambitious young director, dogged by a string of flops, starts principal photography on his latest project, a screen adaptation of a surprise off-Broadway hit. No one knows it yet, but the clash at the Stonewall Inn will mark the beginning of America's modern LGBT rights movement, and the movie being shot elsewhere in Manhattan will provide future viewers with a complex and often troubling look into life before gay liberation. This week on What's in the Basket, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the first major American film to break one of Hollywood's oldest taboos, William Friedkin's 1970 comedy drama, The Boys in the Band. Now, do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi, hello to Boo-Boo, hello to Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. Eddie, what are you doing? The best I can. How did you get the money? How did you get the woman? What do you There's always magic. What's in the basket? So Todd's uh, suggestion for an opening anecdote would be speculating which uh, old Hollywood star would be out there protesting to be freed of Rona restrictions. Uh, who would it be? Charlton Heston for sure. My first instinct was Hedda Hopper, who is not <laughs> a star in the traditional sense, but she'd be out there. She would be out there. She'd have some horrible mask made of, like, taffeta. I was thinking Adolf Manju, because he was mad about everything. Yeah. He thought everything, everything was communism to that man. If they didn't have crack crab in the commissary... <laughs> And Warner Brothers, that's communism. Did you see the sign, the woman holding the sign that said social distancing equals communism? Are you sure it wasn't Adolf Manju? Did she have it? Did it she might have, have a been. little mustache that curled up <laughs> at the corners? And... I just, how can you um, come together as a community for the greater good of society in communism and then immediately think, oh, social distancing, that means we have to be apart. That's communism. I think you are operating on too high of a level for um, the good folk of bumfuck nowhere Ohio. Even Huntington Beach out here, there there was a protest in Huntington Beach in Orange County, and there was this person holding a sign that said, like, you know, lift the Cali restriction. I was like, no one from California calls it Cali. So get your fat ass back to New Jersey, A. And B, you're all wearing masks. They were all wearing masks at this protest. So clearly... (laughs) (laughs) They have some... I I won't say sense. They have some idea that perhaps it's better to wear a mask. Though I suspect the kind of people that are protesting these don't know how to wear the masks properly, so they're functionally useless anyway. Did you see that picture somebody took in like a grocery store? where a guy is wearing gloves and then he pulls one off to use his phone and he's holding it in his mouth by the tip of one of the fingers. <laughs> Holy shit. Because that's what we're working with here. Oh no, we're all gonna die. Well, I mean, Tiff, you nearly died this week anyway. Yeah, I did. Um, so getting to this point where we're actually able to record this episode has been an uphill battle. I'd say we've we've faced off virtually every obstacle you could think of. Yeah, so you guys better fucking appreciate it. <laughs> Up to and including me literally falling headfirst down a flight of icy stairs. 
Uh, I do think I almost died without exaggeration. I managed to catch myself, but if I hadn't, I would have beamed myself right on the skull, broken my neck, and uh, that was like three hours before we were set to record earlier this week. So it's been it's it's been some work to get here. No, it'll be ruined if you swells up. A happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Harold. Happy birthday to you. So fucking funny. Life. Life's a goddamn laugh riot. Welcome to What's in the Basket. My name is Candace, and I'm here with my co-host Tiffany. Hello. And Amelia. Hello. So this week I decided to tackle one of my favorite films, a formative film in my life, to celebrate its 50th anniversary, which was a month ago, but that doesn't matter. We're doing the 1970 William Friedkin movie, The Boys in the Band, which is kind of breaking with tradition on this podcast because I don't think we've done any other movies from the 70s. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. It'll be this and then Roller Coaster, and then that's <laughs> all you need to know. That's all that happened this decade. This is an important movie for sociological reasons, um, for historical reasons. But I also think it's maybe often maligned as being a film play. And I think it's a lot more interesting than that. And I think it has a lot more depth. There's a lot more craftsmanship behind the scenes than it's normally given credit for. And so that was kind of something that I wanted to delve into. Um, I think 50 years is a really important landmark for a movie like this. It was the first of its kind. And for a long time, it was the only one of its kind. So it seemed to me to be a logical choice. That's compounded by the fact that the screenwriter and playwright of the work upon which the film is based, Mark Crowley, died last month. So he did not actually live to see the 50th anniversary. He missed it by just a hair. So that's sad, as we say on this podcast. Actually, and somebody else tangentially involved in this, Terrence McNally, the playwright, who kind of took up the helm after Crowley uh, of writing gay drama for the American stage, uh, also died because he died of coronavirus. Terrence McNally was like the first major American name to die of coronavirus. So I, the hits just keep on coming. So plot summary, because uh, I have noticed that oftentimes we don't talk about what happens in the movie until about two thirds of the way through the episode. And I think that might be a little bit problematic. For who, losers? <laughs> <laughs> For people who want a coherent narrative. So yes, losers. Well, they've come to the wrong podcast. I know. It's organized chaos. Not even organized chaos. It's just it's just chaos. It's chaotic chaos. Okay, so I'm going to try and distill the plot of this movie as fast as I possibly can. So if you could set a timer going, that would be nice. It's the Upper East Side of Manhattan, summer of 1968. Michael, our protagonist, is preparing a birthday party for his friend Harold to take place later that evening. Michael gets a call from an old college friend named Alan, who has flown up from D.C. and insists that he must see Michael that night. When Michael tries to hint that the partygoers are not exactly Alan's typical crowd, Alan begins to cry. So Michael relents and invites him over for drinks. The guests arrive, flexing their various neuroses and intergroup traumas, while Michael nervously waits for Alan. Alan at first plays nice with this odd menagerie, but then as tensions flare regarding his presence at the party, he physically attacks Emery, the most effeminate of the group, after Emery makes one too many double entendres. Michael's tenuous grasp on his sobriety snaps, he starts drinking, a storm hits, 
And while the weather forbids his guests from leaving, he forces them to play a game of his own device where each must call one person and tell them he loves them. And then the night devolves from there. My God, Michael, you're a charming host. Michael doesn't have charm, Donald. Michael has counter charm. Going somewhere? Yes, you're going to have to excuse me. You're going to miss the end of the game. You'll have to tell me how it comes up. I never reveal an ending. And no one will be reseated during the climactic revelation. I would like to point out very quickly that we do know it's the summer of 1968 because uh, very helpfully out on Michael's Terrace is written in chalk, summer 1968. Well, I mean, especially in times like these, it is nice to know what when it is what day it is because I mean I know myself personally I've been having a bit of trouble keeping track of um what day it is and who I am it's true it might be easier if we just wrote the day of the week in chalk it's like doing the little like ticks you know when you're in prison yeah (laughs) you know like on the wall scratching them in with uh, I don't know, a, a knife somebody brought to you encased in jello. Whatever sharp object you can obtain in prison. I've never been to prison. Might go someday. But <laughs> uh, no, I have a theory, which we'll delve into later in the uh, in the episode, that that graffiti is intentional. Well, obviously it's intentional because it's there. But um, because the difference, the, the gap between when the play was written and staged and when the film was made is is such a sizable one. Yeah in terms of changes in the culture, that it feels to me like they had to be like, okay, well, this isn't right now. Yeah. You gotta give us a little bit back because enough is changing at this point in time. Yeah, I thought of that too, but it did make me laugh just to see it, you know, casually. It's very funny. <laughs> it's also in like kids' sidewalk chalk. Yeah. <laughs> Donald likes arts and crafts. So the, I'm just gonna give, uh, again, this is not a theater history podcast. You know, I hate nerds and everything they stand for. So <laughs> I'm just gonna try and, I'm gonna go through a little bit about the play. First, because again, Boys in the Band was a play, shockingly enough, and the kind of circumstances through which it came to fruition are important in terms of uh, then how it's going to be adapted for the screen and also what we're up against really, at this point in in stage history. Obviously, there is a history of censorship on the American stage. um, And following, again, because I'm not a stage person, I think it's around 1930, there's vanishingly few depictions of homosexuality. And so Boys in the Band was really the first major American play to blow that door wide open. And uh, it took a long time for it to get there. So Mark Crowley was a young writer living in New York City who got a job working for our best friend, friend of the pod, Elia Kazan. Okay. Uh, working uh, for Elia Kazan as a gopher on the set of Splendor in the Grass. He became Natalie's gopher, Natalie Wood's gopher. A gopher, you know, is the guy who gets you cigarettes and brings you booze and puts your head in water when you're too drunk to show up to the set. And, you know, not saying anything about Natalie, but just in general, that's what a gopher does. Crowley had moved to New York with the dream of becoming the next, you know, Tennessee Williams or Eugene O'Neill. And instead, he's working for notorious shitheel Ilya Kazan and getting people coffee, right? So he's basically an intern at this point, and it sucks. But luckily, Natalie Wood is a glowing, radiant angel whom we miss very dearly. So (laughs) Natalie was a good person to work for. And Natalie brought Crowley back uh, with her to Hollywood because she said that she needed an assistant slash secretary while she was going to be filming West Side Story. She promised to introduce Crowley to agents at William Morris. And over the course of their initial partnership in Hollywood, he tried and failed 
really, to create some interesting vehicles for Natalie as an actress. He was going to adapt a novel called Cassandra at the Wedding for her. Fox bought it, and in the project, Natalie would have been playing two roles. She would have been playing twins, one straight and one a lesbian. And this was discouraged by everyone in the industry. But Natalie didn't care, because she's Natalie and she doesn't give a shit. Uh, and of course, then Zanuck just killed the project because... Because <laughs> he's Zanuck. Because he's Zanuck. And you're not going to have Natalie Wood play a lesbian in 1966 or whatever year this is. So Crowley is living in Hollywood and nothing is going particularly well for him. Through Natalie, he meets Dominic Dunn. And Dunn thinks Mark Crowley is a really interesting guy. And so he has Mark rewrite the pilot script for the Betty Davis show. And he wants him to camp it up, right? He wants it to, to make it really kind of cutting edge humor, the likes of which had not really been seen on the TV screen before. And it works. And uh, Crowley even makes the subversive move of creating a gay sidekick for Betty to be played by Paul Lynn. But then, obviously, the network, they were like, no. <laughs> so the character was rewritten as a woman, and then the pilot never sold. But you can still view it. It's, it's interesting viewing. So really, at this point in Mark Crowley's uh, career, he's been in Hollywood for a couple of years, and he's miserable. His failures have turned him into a bitter, cruel alcoholic. He goes to parties. He's just insufferable. He's mean. He lashes out at people. But Natalie pulls him out of it by offering him a birthday present, which is psychoanalysis. Because <laughs> <laughs> she, knew, she knew what he needed. So uh, while in therapy, he read a piece in the New York Times by the paper's drama critic Stanley Kaufman. Kaufman is perhaps better remembered today as a film critic and a formative one too because he championed the work of foreign directors at a time when their works were rarely screened outside of art houses, but he was also kind of a dick. And he published an inflammatory piece about how a number of Broadway's foremost playwrights were, unbeknownst to the theater-going public, acting homosexuals who disguised relationships between gay characters as dysfunctional heterosexual romances. He was referring to Tennessee Williams, Edward Albee, and William Inge, because the world just could not stop shitting on William Inge at any point in time. Kaufman implored gay playwrights to write truthfully of what he knows, rather than try to transform it to a life he does not know, to the detriment of his truth and ours. So this was the impetus that Crowley, broke, unemployed, and miserable, needed. He decided to do what others had not, and in his words, let it all hang out. While living in New York City, Crowley had attended a birthday party with a friend named Howard Jeffries, who had been Jerome Robbins' assistant on the set of West Side Story. Crowley observed the gay men at the party, how different they were in everything from their presentation in terms of gender to how promiscuous they behaved. But one element of their identity tied them together, whether they liked it or not. He envisioned his friend Howard as the party's moral center. He toyed with this idea, sketching the bones of it while in Beverly Hills, babysitting for the actress Diana Lynn, whom you two know as the nerdy kid sister who helps Ginger Rogers scheme to break off Ray Milan's engagement in Major in the Minor. <laughs> oh. oh, wow. Oh. All right. It all comes back to Ginger. So Crowley finished the first draft of The Boys in the Band five weeks later, which it took me five weeks to write this episode, so I... <laughs> But, uh, and again, I'm not a theater historian, so I'm going to gloss over some of the moving pieces behind the play's debut on the stage. But to, to summarize, basically, Crowley goes to New York with this play in hand, and he takes it to everyone he has any kind of contact with. He's pimping out all of his Kazan, Natalie, you know, Dominic Dunn, all of his contacts. Anyone who knows anyone, he's trying to get this play into their hands. And everybody hates it. Nobody wants to stage this play. It is too dangerous. But eventually, it gets in the hands of Richard Barr, who was Edward Albee's producing partner partner. He had produced Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, right? A play that many people had thought to be unstageable. And Barr really liked it. So he gave it to Albie and Albie fucking hated it. 
Oh, no. Albi said uh, he <laughs> described it as a highly skillful work that I despised. He thought it was a beautifully crafted play, but that it was going to do so much damage to the American homosexual that it would be irresponsible to stage it. And this broke Mark Crowley's heart yeah. <laughs> oh. to have his uh, his idol say, you know, you're undoing everything I've ever attempted to do. And oh, fuck, man. So that was hard. That was hard. But eventually, you know, Richard Barr won out. And uh, the Playwrights Unit, which was a workshop for young writers who were popular at the time, uh, Terrence McNally, for example, you know, Sam Shepard, offered a contract to Crowley to stage the boys in the band in a very kind of limited small, I mean, a workshop. If you know anything about a theatrical workshop, it's not an elaborate production. It's very bare bones, right? Very low budget. And that was all Albie would give it. And Albie basically agreed to back the play with the stipulation that if it were successful in the workshop, it would never play on Broadway because he did not want the theater going public to be exposed to the ideas in the play, which is kind of rich because yeah. who's afraid mm-hmm. of Virginia Woolf? I wish that had never been written. So, you know, <laughs> you know, if I just want to see Dick and Liz fucking throwing bottles at each other, it's like you can just swing by their house on a Friday night. Like who needs to, you know? So in its workshop form, one of the main issues that came to a head was casting. They cycled through a set of actors who were really not excited about being in the play. Some of the people who ultimately ended up being in the play did say that uh, the actors who shall not be named who basically thought the play was a waste of time or you know they were behaving fairly homophobic about it and so then everybody got shit canned right this is they were having a, a real difficulty in solidifying a cast but one of the first people that Crowley had shown the finished product to was an old college friend named Lawrence Luckinbill who was surprised to learn that Crowley wanted him to play the role of Hank Crowley and Luckinbill had an interesting relationship kind of a bizarre relationship and I won't go too much into it here but they had bought bonded over their similar upbringings. They had both grown up working class in the South. Their parents were both addicts. They had both been sexually abused as children. They both had felt alienated amongst like a well-heeled college crowd while they had been attending the Catholic University in Washington, D.C. They had spent summers together and Crowley was maybe a little bit in love with Luck and Bill and Luck and Bill had told him that if he could ever love a man, it would be Crowley. So they just have a really strange, you know, kind of bond. But um, Luck and Bill was awed by the play and he knew he had to be involved. And so he was crucial in bolstering Crowley's confidence just as agents across town began instructing their clients not to audition for the play under any circumstances. This included Luck and Bill's agent, who was also Crowley's agent. She told him. Not a good agent. (laughs) Not a good agent. Uh, She herself, she was a lesbian in a lavender marriage with a gay man. And she represented the old guard of the New York theater world who hoped that boys in the band could be staged in the future someday in five years, maybe 10 but that there was no way legitimate performers should risk getting involved in a play that was not only doomed at the box office, but had the potential to mark its cast as gay by association. But that didn't really end up, you know, deterring Luckinville. What these agents didn't understand, however, was that the novelty of playing something so truthful explicitly for what it really was for the first time on stage, appealed to a number of actors who knew that even if the play were to close within a week, they might never get such a chance again. And most of those actors were gay. The cast coalesced kind of quickly from there, 
once word started to get out on the street that, you know, maybe this was actually going somewhere. Like, Crowley starts to see people he hasn't seen in years. Like, he had last seen Frederick Combs at a gay bar in West Hollywood, like 1966, and then he strolls into audition for Donald, you know? So, because, again, the gay world is composed of, like, 15 people. So, we start to get firm casting decisions, although the roles are still kind of being switched around in workshop form. But the dynamic... The chemistry between the cast is beginning to kind of gel. Leonard Fry is cast as Harold, and Keith Prentice is cast as Larry. The biggest feather in Crowley's cap, by far, was the casting of Kenneth Nelson as Michael. Nelson was a seasoned actor whose craftsmanship was held in high regard in the off-Broadway scene. He had been in a number of musicals. He had played The Boy in The Fantastics, which is the longest-running musical in stage history. He had been the star of a musical based on a Booth Tarkington uh, novel called Seventeen, which is just, it's just a very funny kind of arc from being like a, you know, twinky little Broadway juvenile to, you know, being this balding, angry man in this show. But it's, it's funny to me. Isn't it funny how things happen sometimes and, and change everything? Gosh, just like it was fate. I believe in fate. Don't you? Oh, S. <laughs> this was just another day. It started off the same old way. Oh, I had no idea. That this would be the day of days for me. It was Nelson's presence, his stamp of approval, that attracted straight actors to the project. Peter White was cast as Alan, Reuben Green as Bernard, and Cliff Gorman, who was playing majorly against type to the kind of people he played in the past and the kind of person he was off screen, as Emery. And I saved the best uh, for last because I know you two hate horny anecdotes. Robert Latourneau was cast after Mark Crowley and Robert Moore, the producer, saw him dancing on Fire Island, and Crowley was like, oh, he's cute. <laughs> and Moore was like, come on, man, fuck. And uh, so Crowley reasoned that even if Latourneau couldn't act, the cowboy was such a small part that it didn't really matter. He looked right for the part, and they just got lucky that Latourneau actually knew, you know, his Shakespeare. So that just that just happened to, to cut well in line. But it was, it, was about, it was about hornies. They went into the production on opening night, January 23rd, 1968, expecting gay audiences to filter through for a week, get their fill of the novelty of seeing gay characters on stage, with maybe a few sympathetic straight liberals scattered through the house, and then the play would close. The next morning, Lawrence Luck and Bill walked by and saw a box office line three blocks long. Holy shit. <laughs> the wow. first five performances saw the likes of Jackie Kennedy Onassis and the original creative team behind West Side Story in attendance. Marlena wow. Dietrich saw it, and she <laughs> took the cast out for dinner at Sardi's. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they drilled a peephole through the scenery so they could watch the reactions of playgoers like Groucho Marx. Wow. This play exploded. They were absolutely mobbed by admirers at the stage door. Uh, the straight members of the cast would go home to their wives and girlfriends, and then the gays would head to the baths where they were, like, received as heroes. You know, everyone was having a good time. Before long, it was the play of the season. The types of theatergoers who would never, ever venture off-Broadway in the past were fighting for tickets. Easter Sunday of that year, it moved off-Broadway to the Theater 4, and it spawned two separate road companies, one on the East Coast and one on the West, while the original cast took it to London and beyond. It was a cultural phenomenon, and at last, Mark Crowley could be proud of his work. Well, he went through enough to get there, Jesus. It was a long road. He would have been feeling a bit, like, vindicated at this point. <laughs> they all talk about how strange it was, because they really expected a, a half-empty house, and then they would have fun, you know, and then it would be over. 
But when Cliff Gorman went out on stage and Emery spoke for the first time, the whole house erupted into laughter. And Emery was not written as a funny character because he's really a terrible little person. <laughs> so Gorman was just having to kind of like analyze this in his mind as he's performing, like, hold on a second here. You know, uh, what am I doing? And so they had to kind of reshape it after that because the play was getting these outsized reactions that they hadn't prepared for. And so then they had to fine tune some of the performances. But as it always happens, Hollywood came knocking because Hollywood likes money. And the 1968 production had charged $10 a ticket at a time when legitimate Broadway plays only cost $6.90. Wow, okay. This set a record for ticket prices. So they, they had an idea, something something's brewing here, and we got to get in on it. All of a sudden, Crowley, right, who last time he left Hollywood had been a complete failure of a human being, is the comeback kid. Everybody's inviting him to parties. He's trying not to get drunk at them and scream at people, but he's still going. Everybody's Everybody wants in on that. Everybody wants in on this play. But he doesn't want anyone to fuck it up. And if he knows anything about Hollywood from his experiences working in pilots and writing scripts that were never produced, Hollywood loves to fuck stuff up. So the suits are swarming him from all sides, trying to get their preferred stars in on the action. At one point, Paul Newman is floated as a lead, which everyone involved refused because (laughs) uh, Crowley and company did not want audiences coming exclusively for the novelty of seeing Paul Newman playing a homosexual. Was not interesting to them. Uh, Kirk Douglas tried to buy it. I don't even know who Kirk Douglas would have wanted to play, to be honest with you. Um, (laughs) Bernard? I don't know. It's it's kind of... Uh, but ew. There was even a brief conversation about casting stars who were so inclined in their personal lives, like Rock Hudson, Tony Perkins, and Roddy McDowell, which, if you know anything about these people, absolutely would never have happened. Yeah. So who knows who came up with that one? Uh, but Crowley stuck to his guns, demanding that the cast remain the same and that he himself write the script. He held out for an $800,000 offer what he referred to as the expense budget on an Otto Preminger movie to maintain the authenticity of the play, by which he meant shooting it in New York. And ultimately, such an offer came from another sympathetic heterosexual in Crowley's social circle, our old pal Dominic Dunn. Dunn brokered a deal with Cinema Center Films, CBS's theatrical release subsidiary. Uh, Of course, there's a touch of irony here, considering that CBS proper had just recently produced the infamous 1968 Mike Wallace documentary, The Homosexuals, in which Wallace asserted that Americans consider homosexuality more harmful to society than adultery, abortion, or prostitution. An ally. An ally. Little known hero. Cinema Center Films is a really intriguing failure that I want to get into a little bit because on this podcast we haven't talked much about what happens around the kind of death knell of the studio system when all of a sudden all these major players are moving into the industry and they decide that they too want to make motion pictures. CVS president William S. Paley had been reluctant to expand into films. He had vetoed a planned 1963 acquisition of the Paramount catalog because he considered simply re-airing existing movies to be low effort, preferring instead that the network's top brass focus their energies on producing top quality original content. Cinema Center Films did brisk business in the late 60s, producing profitable but conventional light entertainment like With Six You Get Egg Roll, starring Doris Day, 
and The April Fool starring Jack Lemmon, all made on the former Republic Pictures lot. But Paley was dissatisfied with the results of Cinema Center's early ventures. CBS was the most prestigious network in American television at the time, and Paley wanted to replicate the success of CBS's investments in Broadway productions. CBS had made $33 million off My Fair Lady back in 1955, and similar bets added to the network's war chest in the ensuing years. It was probably Paley's affinity for difficult plays, such as Cabaret, that emboldened Cinema Center Vice President Gordon Stolberg to pursue the film rights to the boys in the band. Group Vice President for Broadcasting Jack Schneider recalled, what better way to get their attention in Hollywood than to have a movie that began, Who do you have to fuck to get a drink around here? <laughs> Would you like somewhere? Which is not the opening line of the movie, so I don't know if he ever saw it, but that's okay. That's fine. <laughs> uh, Paley, who had previously opted out of investing in Fiddler on the Roof on the grounds that he was too Jewish, was obviously not thrilled with the content. But he trusted Stolberg to create, in Stolberg's words, a distinct CBS motion picture personality. Boys in the band, they hoped, would demonstrate to the industry elite that CBS possessed not only artistic vitality, but with their controversial choice of subject matter, an edge over the major studios, who by the end of the 60s seemed hopelessly stuck in the passe morality of the old Hollywood. Because what are the other studios even doing at the time? Nothing good. Nothing good. I mean, the only thing I can think of in terms of a movie that kind of rivals this in terms of shock value would be something like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls being made over at Fox. And that movie was made because I don't think anyone was supervising Russ Meyer the whole time. I mean, the scene where Z-Man rips open his vest jacket thing alone and then the titties pop out and then I don't think anyone was paying any attention to what was going on <laughs> over at Fox. So, But apart from that, the other studios are really treading water by 1969. Well, that was exactly the point that Paley was trying to make, that the other studios were just churning out shit and he was like, wouldn't it be cool if we could make edgy movies and then people would go see them and then we could rear them on television? And unfortunately, nobody said... I don't think you can put a movie that has a whole line about rimming a snowman on television. <laughs> Happy birthday, Hallie. What happened to you? Don't ask. Your lips are turning blue. You look like you've been rimming a snowman. <laughs> so I'm not really sure what happened there. Maybe Paley was, maybe he was day drunk. I don't know. Paley's also such an interesting, weird guy. He had worked with uh, with Zucker at Paramount in the 20s. And so I, he kind of always wanted to be like a big movie mogul, but it was like never the right time. Because when he got involved in uh, media, radio was the next big thing. And so he preferred to hop in on something that was a true, like, new frontier. And so Hollywood kind of was always on the back burner for him. But I, he really wanted CBS Cinema Center Films to be that outlet for truly surprising and rewarding content. And spoiler alert, I'm sad that that never really ended up happening for him. But he also thought that Fiddler on the Roof was too Jewy, so... <laughs> we don't align on a lot of things. <laughs> so the adaptation to film was undertaken, I will say, trepidatiously. Just as no one, perhaps except Mark Crowley himself, expected the play to take off, no one had really anticipated that it could be made into a commercial film. But the CBS execs wanted names attached. William Friedkin was approached on the recommendation of Dominic Dunn, who knew him from his work on the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. Of course. Uh, okay. <laughs> And like Crowley, uh, Dunn particularly admired Friedkin's 1967 adaptation of the Harold Pinter play The Birthday Party, which my mom hates Harold Pinter. She does this thing where if I ask too many questions, she says, what are you, are we in a Harold Pinter play? <laughs> she'll be like, like, and then I told her this morning, I was like, did you know that Friedkin made an adaptation of 
Pinter's birthday party. And she was like, are you going to the birthday party? Well, I don't know, Tom. Are you going to the birthday party? <laughs> I, I will be at the birthday party. Will you be at the birthday party? Anyways, that's, that's my mom. So she gets mad at me. She tells me I sound like Harold Pinter. I don't think other people's moms insult them like that, but that's okay. No, never been yeah. there. Never no, been just there. you. Just me. Uh, so Friedkin was really up to his shoulders in dog shit at this point in time because he had stepped on a lot of toes while making uh, the movie before the birthday party. It's a long story, but to summarize, basically Friedkin was hired to direct a movie called The Night They Raided Minsky's, which was supposed to be about the origin of the striptease and uh, the world of burlesque in the 1920s. He wanted to approach it through the lens of like a silent film, you know, because he knew silent film well. He knew, you know, a movie like Applause from 1929. That was how he envisioned this movie. But Norman Lear, who had written the script, wanted it to look authentically like live 1920s musical production. And Friedkin, who's like 27 years old, is like, I was not alive back then. So they are clashing continuously this whole time. <laughs> Freakin has absolutely no idea what Lear wants from him. So Freakin sees the rough cut of the movie, and it's a monstrosity. So he flies to England to make the birthday party. He goes on television, and he tells the British television audience not to go see the night they raided Minsky's oh, because fuck. it sucks dog dick. <laughs> and back home, Norman Lear is having a fucking stroke. <laughs> He's so mad. Freakin is basically getting telegrams saying, like, don't come back. Uh, somebody's going to break your kneecaps, you know. So Friedkin has just burned a ton of bridges in Hollywood. Meanwhile, the editor on the film, whose name escapes me, has actually reassembled the movie by borrowing techniques uh, that Richard Lester and his editors had used on uh, A Hard Day's Night. And he uses those to kind of rejiggle the movie together and then everything works out fine. So then the movie's okay. It's not It's not great. It's okay, whatever. Friedkin comes home. And of course, now he looks like an even bigger asshole because the movie's actually not that bad. So anyway. <laughs> So Freakin, Freakin is dogged by a string of flops at this point in time. But CBS believes in him for whatever reason. I, I don't know. I, I have absolutely no idea. I wouldn't believe in him at this point. It's good that he had someone to believe in him, I guess. Yeah. That, we all need somebody to believe in us. We like, all like, need somebody. Like Gaga said, there can be 99 people in a room. <laughs> But if Bradley Cooper is there, then that only makes, that makes 100 people. <laughs> that equals, 99 plus 1 equals 100, I believe is what Gaga was trying to teach us. I believe that's exactly what she said, yes. It's like the reverse of 99 bottles of beer on the wall. 99 plus 1 equals Bradley Cooper. Anyway, I still can't believe he did that with Minsky's. He was just like, don't fucking see this movie. It sucks. <laughs> I'm so ashamed of it. I wish I was dead. <laughs> <Make us back. laughs> And they're just like, what the fuck? It's not even that bad. But now nobody's going to go see it because you told everybody it's the worst movie in the world. This would happen Honestly, to us. it's like us with this podcast. Yeah. Literally. If we could only make an episode as bad as the night they raided Minsky's. I give us time. I give us Jeez. time. Boys in the Band, because of CBS's high expectations, presented a shot of redemption on one hand and because of its content, a big fuck you to the industry on the other, which obviously appealed to Freakin because Freakin loves nothing more than a big fuck you Hollywood. Uh, the cast resisted Friedkin initially, worried that he'd want to meddle with what they'd honed over the years. They were protective of the play, especially since Friedkin replaced their stage director, Robert Moore, who was gay himself. Everyone involved kind of ribbed Friedkin for being this Hollywood big shot, you know, with a big cigar who wanted everyone to know that he was, you know, a red-blooded 
heterosexual, but he won them over when he made it clear that he did not intend to change what had made the play a success. What he wanted to do was to distill it, shrink it, adjust it for the screen, and make it play in a way that otherwise it would not have played on camera. Cliff Gorman, for example, was accustomed to playing Emery so broadly that Emery really had to be, had he had to be tamed, Midas Harris was, um, <laughs> otherwise he'd suck up all the air on the soundstage. It just wasn't going to work, right? So Friedkin really had to labor. They went through two weeks of rehearsals and Friedkin is just looking at them and he's like, no, stop flapping your arms. You know, they're really having to make it work. The idea that that is the result of him toning it down makes me yeah. really wish I could see what the play was like because that's such, wild. It's such a shame. I'm going to get into this later, but because it's a, it's an aberration and very uncommon, but there is actually uh, a vinyl recording of the play. They released okay. the play on vinyl and yeah, you can hear it. You can hear <laughs> it coming from him. You know, they're all a little bit broader in general because obviously a film is much more intimate. But Gorman just—he's such a, a magnetic performer. But there's something about Emery. It's 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 like a perfect like lightning strike of 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 actor and material. And I don't think there's very few performances that I think. Are, are like that, where they're so immediately recognizable. Everybody said that when they saw Cliff Gorman playing Emery, they knew someone exactly like that. You know, that was somebody that just everyone knew. He was that archetype. And of course, then it's going to engender a lot of controversy later on because people are going to be like, hey, stop making fun of people like that. And it's like, well, they're not really making fun of them. It is a sympathetic portrayal, mm-hmm. but also it is very broad. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I want to get a little bit into the technical aspects of the movie because nobody ever discusses the technical aspects of this movie because they suck ass and I'm better in analysis than they are. Uh, <laughs> very first thing I want to leap into is costuming. I only have a couple things to say about the costuming. One, I do think that the changes made for the screen regarding Cowboy's outfit are much better because when you look at photos of the stage play, it's like he's just, he's wearing like a button down shirt. Like it doesn't play at all. You know, he just looks like a kid who got off a bus, you know, whereas the kind of real like Texan fantasy situation that they give him in the movie, I think works much more. It really works in emphasizing his desirability. And also, I think, helps to emphasize his youth in comparison to a lot of the other actors on stage. Because La Torneau is really, he's almost, I think, 20 years younger than, than Kenneth Nelson. He is, there is a substantial age gap. But there are parts of the costuming that I think are terrible, um, because 1970 was a low point for um, fashion. Yeah. Fashion, yeah. Like <laughs> I have a f- like the bucket hat. The bucket hat. <laughs> I love the bucket hat. <laughs> the bucket hat that Donald wear. Oh, it's the worst bucket hat in the world. And then when you look at it on stage, it's like he's, the man's just wearing a turtleneck. It's like the the why is there a bucket hat involved? You know. Um, but I guess also they decided that nobody was wearing a turtleneck in the summer and it, theaters are drafty and movie stages aren't. But um, one I have a particular issue with is that god-awful leisure suit, like that jumpsuit that Larry wears. I have, I hate that. I hate <laughs> the, the thing that Keith Prentice is wearing, which is funny because when you look at the pictures, it's like Keith Prentice is also a fairly young guy. So when you see him on stage in the, in the Broadway, ver- in the off-Broadway version, it's like he's wearing like beetle boots and he's got love beads on. And it's like, oh, right, that's a young man in his 20s and not a divorced 
father of three who's trying to get back out there, which is really the vibe that they get, you know, with the jumpsuit. I hate that jumpsuit. <laughs> if there is one thing I could change about this movie, I would change the jumpsuit because it's <laughs> like, it doesn't work. I hate it. You guys also had problems with, really, Amelia had problems with the amount of chest hair that we see in this movie. And I don't There's a lot, I mean, I understand that it was a fashion thing at the time. Like, it was acceptable to have lots of body hair. And I'm definitely not shaming people for having body hair. But, I mean, the neckline was very, very low on... <laughs> I just didn't need to see it. Absolutely didn't need to see it. So. She, she didn't need to see it. She didn't need to see it, and I agree with her. Moving on from from my gripe, I've, I've aired my grievances about the costuming. So uh, here's something I do I do like: the interiors and in the film are the film set are really remarkably close. You know, to uh, the ones from the stage. Peter Harvey, who was the set designer and frequent collaborator at the playwrights unit. So this is the guy who worked on the movie, on the play, not necessarily the movie. Um, he typically had a budget of $36 per production, which isn't, isn't a lot of money, even, no. in, <laughs> even in the late 1960s. So they used photographs to pad out the scenery. And since Michael is a character with discerning taste... Uh, even a semi-realistic rendering of his apartment would have completely decimated the budget. So what Harvey did was blow up pictures from magazines of like very, very fine, like rich people interiors and then plastered them to the flats to the rear and sides of the stage. And one that he utilized inadvertently was Barbara Walters' apartment and Barbara <laughs> Walters came to see the play. <laughs> she was like, that's my fucking living room. <laughs> but she wouldn't have said that. How would Barbara... That's my living room. Wow. That's my living room. Oh, my God. My living room. That's my living room. Yes, that's my... It's not quite as good as your Bob Dylan, i got to tell you. It's not as good as my... I'm terrible. They're very similar. Tonality. Like, in the tonality, they're very similar. That's my living room. Uh, but one of the things I love, love, love about the set decoration in the movie is the attention to detail. Every book, every photograph, everything is thought out just painstakingly. Every time I watch the movie, I find something new that I hadn't noticed before. The taste, the taste level of it all. This is, it's so, it's so wonderfully gay to me. There's also these little nods to the origins of the play. One of the pictures that's hanging above Michael's desk is actually a picture of Howard Jeffrey, the man who inspired Harold. And um, you can also see in the background, you can see headshots of Kenneth Nelson back when he was just a little Broadway twink in the early 50s, going to emphasize the idea that, you know, once once Michael was beautiful and now he's going bald and he wears Vicuna sweaters that he steals from, you know, Saxon Avenue. My hair, without exaggeration, is clearly falling on the floor, baby. And fast. You're totally paranoid. You've got plenty of hair. Well, what you see before you is a masterpiece of deception. My hairline starts about here. All this is just tortured forward. Well, I hope for your sake no strong wind comes up. <laughs> well, if one does, I'll be in terrible trouble. I will then have a bald head and shoulder-length fringe. Look. Not good, huh? Not the greatest. It's called getting old. Well, there's one thing to be said for masturbation. You certainly don't have to look your best. It is a very beautiful set, and I think given whatever limitations that they had, they really made the most of it, especially when you look at like all the little nods. Like they're in the kitchen, there's this poster of Marlena Dietrich in there, and um, there's, I think you said there's like a silent film star on Michael's desk. And... Yeah, and I can't figure out who it is, but I know I've seen the picture before, and I've been, I've been trying like for years now 
to figure out who to this work is. Out. I can't I can't figure out, but I know it's somebody, and one day it'll just hit me in the middle of the night. But yeah, I really like the um, attention to detail that's been paid. It's really lovingly crafted, and I think it, it definitely feels like it belongs to the character, which I think a lot of films don't quite get. A lot of the time in films, a character will have a space that they simply would not inhabit. So it is nice to see that kind of care come across. And I'm interested to see what the um, actual play set looked like, considering it was... <laughs> Big pictures of Barbara Walters' house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's really no, um, there's like a table, some ch- it's really, it's very, very, very low budget. Even when they moved to Theater 4, it was still fairly low budget. I do think it's interesting, though, um, it is quite a large apartment. And the fact that the insinuation is that Michael steals and he doesn't live on his own money, uh, when you think about it, and that apartment that he lives in would definitely be worth like $3 million today. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, no, absolutely. how the times happen changed <laughs> you know because michael is implied to come from money you know he comes from a very old southern family and uh you know he he lives off credit he lives off generosity of other people and it's like which sugar daddy bought this apartment i the whole thing is very odd and i think that's also part of the texture of the play i like how it's it's its own character the apartment really is crucial to it and that's what a, a lot of people really admired about this movie when they first saw it. what what a great staging of that apartment also because the apartment is a sound stage and it doesn't look like a set and we're at a time in film where so many of the really good old brass guys from MGM or RKO have retired and they are not still out there making sets and most of those sets in the late 60s look like shit. So it's a really, really wonderful. Also, the sheer, the fact that it has two levels to it Mm-hmm. And you actually see actors walking between the two levels is fairly rare because, you know, for structural concerns. I, I, just, I just think it's such a cool set. So, um, oh, here, here was another kind of bump in the road. The original cinematographer on this film was Adam Hollander, who had just had a hit with the very gritty and very tactile Midnight Cowboy. Friedkin's alarm bell started to ring a little bit when he spoke to John Schlesinger, who was the director of Midnight Cowboy. And Schlesinger was like, Adam is difficult. And Friedkin was like, well, that's not a good sign. <laughs> no. uh, so Hollander's reluctance to shoot on location or really accept any of Friedkin's criticism at all meant that he was fired in favor of veteran DP Arthur Ornitz, who had to race against the clock to finish the location shooting ASAP, thanks to Hollander's dawdling. These locations include actress Tammy Grimes' Upper East Side apartment, which doubles for Michael's patio. That's the terrace with Tiff's beloved graffiti. Uh, the Doubleday flagship bookstore on Fifth Avenue where Bernard works, also seen in Annie Hall, but mercifully, Woody Allen was not there this time. Uh, <laughs> the Sherry Nether... Yeah, I know. I can imagine. Somebody probably said, we could probably get Woody Allen to play Harold. Uh, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. I know that. I'd be throwing him over the fucking balcony. <laughs> I can't get over Paul Newman. I can't envision Paul Newman. Would he be Allen? He would have to be Allen. But at the same time, Allen is such a compare, you know, he's not a big enough, you know. Not a big enough role. Not a big enough role. And also, part of the charm of this movie is that all these people look like real people. Paul Newman doesn't look like, <laughs> you know. This is the problem that they ran into a lot of in the 70s, where it was like they wanted to go like super vernacular on one end. 
And then they also wanted to go like high profile star on the other end. And so then you make a movie like, I don't know, fucking McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And it's like, you can't have two people who look like Warren Beatty and Julie Christie and then just a bunch of other fucking schlubs. It doesn't <laughs> work. And you know, I'm not calling the people in The Boys of the Band ugly, but they're not Paul Newman. So it, it just... I mean, to be fair though, it felt like a lot of in the late 60s, early 70s, a lot of fairly average looking people could star in movies. Let's oh, yeah? just say that. Like the standards were a lot, I guess, a little bit more relaxed. They were just like, sure, you could look like you work on a checkout and be in a movie. That's fine. Who are you, you calling know? ugly specifically? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could pick any one name. There's just like, you watch a lot of films from that time and it's just like man you could just fucking look like anything the i guess styling doesn't help i think a lot of it is the styling from no, that period yeah i was talking about the paper chase with my mom and she was talking about how unbelievable it is to her that Lindsay wagner is in love with timothy bottoms when he's got like his horrible scraggly mustache and his like really like unkempt hair and he's got because you know timothy bottoms has those little tiny eyes i'm like i think timothy bottoms is really cute in the paper chase but i'm a broken person so <laughs> I love Timothy Bottoms. You know, you people know how much I love roller coasters. So Timothy Bottoms to me is always like, that's good shit. That's good content. Timothy Bottoms should have been in this movie, but not really because I wouldn't want him to be in this movie. He could have, he could have been at the very beginning when Larry is taking the photos of the models and Maude Adams is playing one of the models. And then he could have been there and I could just been like, well, is that Timothy Bottoms? And then that would be over. <laughs> okay. Or he could play the, the, the cake delivery guy, something like that, you know whatever. Whatever, whatever happened to the cake delivery boy. Maybe you grew up to be a serial killer. Like the tech from The Exorcist. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Maybe it's just like proximity to Freakin that like preludes doom. Freakin is a lunatic. And <laughs> I, I have to say this. I, I don't think there's anyone who is quite so duplicitous. And that's not even really the right word because I don't think it's intentional. Freakin just never seems to know what he's talking about at any moment. He's like half lucid and then half like Mickey Rooney crazy. Like <laughs> um, I haven't seen it because you can't get a hold of it anywhere. It was like never released for home video. But um, there's a documentary that was made a couple years ago called Freakin' Uncut, where Freakin' talks about his movies and different directors talk about how much they want to, you know, suck his dick and all that kind of stuff. But he, at one point, I guess, tries to engage in some, like, extended metaphor about why Hitler and Jesus are, are very similar in terms of archetype, you know? And he's just, he's just batshit crazy. Freakin's batshit crazy. At one point, when he was giving a public lecture about talking about the making of The Poison the Band, he started describing in vivid detail seeing a daisy chain performed on Fire Island which if you don't know what that is, don't Google it. And um, one of the writers from the Village Voice just like stood up and started shouting at him to get down off the stage because he was embarrassing himself. I mean, this whole thing, you know, he was like, you're being a homophobe. And Freakin's like, I saw it with my own eyes. Freakin's crazy. Uh, the other locations are the Sherry Netherland Hotel overlooking Central Park where Alan calls Michael, the stretch of 42nd Street where Emery looks over the lineup of hustlers before landing on Cowboy, and Julius's the West Village gay bar where Hank tries and fails to reel in Larry's wandering eye, which is also really cool because that shot opens, that scene opens with a shot of a Robert Taylor headshot hanging <laughs> over the bar. Yeah, I noticed that. That felt loaded. That felt really loaded to me. And for anyone who's listening to this and doesn't like it when I make suggestions about the personal inclinations of old Hollywood stars, I would just like to say, whoever worked at Julius's knew something you didn't, 
And um, that, that's all I'm going to say. It's established. Take it up with Sal Minio, okay? I wasn't there. Maybe they just knew something about the widow's peak that we all just didn't. Have I talked about the Sal Minio story on this podcast? I think I have. I don't think so. Oh, okay. So there's, okay. So this is like a third hand thing. I think it was like Sal told this to somebody who told it to somebody, you know, one of those things. So again, whatever. Take it with a grain of salt. I wasn't there. Shut the fuck up. Don't tell me <laughs> anything about it. But allegedly, <laughs> Taylor, Robert Taylor asked Sal Minio out to dinner. And Sal was like, okay, all right. I don't know what's going on. I'm down with this. And, uh, you know, they're, they're chilling. They're out for dinner. And then Sal's like, well, blah, 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 blah. And he makes a remark, like, talking. He, like, uses the word homosexuality or something. And Taylor is immediately like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're trying to imply. I was just wanted to have a nice meal with a young, <laughs> handsome Italian-American gentleman. <laughs> I've never even heard of a homosexual. What is that? What is that? And then he left. And Sal was like, okay, well, that's weird. So, (laughs) and again, remember, story filtering through a lot of different people. I wasn't there. However, much like Buddy Rogers, and I can't believe it's not Nelson Eddy, Mr. Gene Raymond, on that ship, I wasn't there, but do I believe other people who were there? Maybe. Yeah. Are you going to call Sal Minio a liar? Exactly. Who are you to call Sal Minio a liar? Who, who, if you're thinking about this right now, if you want to defend Robert Taylor's heterosexuality, who are you? <laughs> to call Sal Minio a liar. Probably Barbara Stanwyck. <laughs> Probably. That's a whole other can of worms. So, <laughs> the, I had forgotten when we made the Gene Raymond episode where we talked about Gene Raymond, you know, what's a good metaphor? Boot scootin'. Okay, there you go. Thank you. I was trying to come up with something a little, a little nastier, but we'll go with boot scootin' with Buddy Rogers that I had forgotten that I had, like, was on some random blog and there was a comment that said that, like, everybody knew that Buddy Rogers, towards the end of his life, was, like, in a long-term relationship with his, like, Japanese gardener. So, uh, you know, I hope that Buddy Rogers found love in a hopeless place with yeah. the Japanese gardener. Began to take it up with some anonymous commenter on the internet whose, whose, whose statements I'm repeating verbatim, whatever. I do have some issues with the cinematography the cinematography as the kids say in this movie i feel this movie is terribly overlit i always have it is quite stark it's extremely stark and it's so overlit that colors like that marvelous barney purple sweater that kenneth nelson is wearing levitate out like he's a cartoon character you know there's like an aura around everything i hate it it's so overlit i'm gonna attribute that towards Hollander wasting all of their time before they could actually start filming the movie. But it's not good. I think it's beneath Ornitz's capabilities as a cinematographer. But I will give him a pass since he did a wonderful job on Requiem for Heavyweight, which is my favorite Mickey Rooney movie. Ada Hearts, that's good to know. That is very good to know. The Ada Hearts, that's good to know. Originally on the stage, it's, I was going to say the dumbest thing imaginable, which is that it's a bottle play, but every place is bottle play. <laughs> <laughs> so what, I, what I'm trying to say here is that... Well, I mean, it is technically a bottle play, because if you look in some plays, they do have scene changes. That's so true. Where, I mean, they, like, people in black run across the straight stage and, like, put different parts of the set up to make it look like they're in a different location. So it is technically a bottle play. You are right. But uh, I think it was a good decision to open it up a little bit and to show these locations and that opening montage. I go a little bit into this in a second, but I I think it was an interesting creative decision. And I think it also works to give a little bit more depth to depictions of some characters that we otherwise are only going to see within the apartment. I guess we don't really need the shot of like Alan getting off a plane, but I, I still I still really enjoy it. I think it's a good montage. I also like the part when Donald's driving his cute little VW Beetle and then the truck driver goes like motherfucking son of a bitch mouthing it and I'm just like couldn't have done that in 
with Six You Get Egg Roll starring Doris Day. I was going to say I was a big fan of Emery's dog. And I, uh, I wish oh, he'd shown up dog. a bit more. Does the dog die? Entry for the boys in the band. The dog survives everyone else's dignity, though. Just... <laughs> it is a really good dog. I loved seeing that, that antique store. I want to know where that antique store was. There's just... That's the other thing, too, is that so much of New York has changed that I think it's it's really cool and really vital to be able to say these places. The Doubleday Bookstore doesn't exist anymore. These are... 42nd Street is no longer, you know, the 42nd Street of the boys in the band or Basket Case. That's not... It's... it's it's not that world anymore. It's it's really nice to see that. I know in the 70s, there was a lot of location shooting, but it oftentimes didn't feel intentional. A lot of times in the 70s, it felt like there was location shooting just for the sheer fact that everybody felt like they had to get out of the soundstage or they were going to lose their minds. It's nice to feel something that feels purposeful. The film has no score and instead utilizes a pop soundtrack. Freakin's films are unconventional in that he typically shows very little fidelity to the actual musical milieu of the world he's depicting. Whereas a lot of directors like almost fetishize the wall-to-wall jukebox approach to signal where we are. We are in this place at this time, that John Hughes shit. You know, uh, Freakin' was never about that. Freakin' was never about that life. The punk rock that plays in Cruising, for example, using a Freakin' movie, bears absolutely no relation whatsoever to the actual sounds of the New York S&M scene. They were playing disco while they were flogging each other. And Freakin' was like, wouldn't it be cool if you heard the germs? You know, he was not, was not interested in realism when it came to music. But Boys in the Band, however, is actually quite true to its era. The kind of folksy, psychedelic, Harper's Bazaar version of Cole Porter's Anything Goes over the opening montage does, I think, a really good job of situating the viewer in this strange little upside-down world. In the olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked on something shocking now, heaven knows, anything goes. Burt Bacharach's Look of Love serves as the theme, which is a strong stylistic choice. But to me, the single most important musical moment in the film is right before Alan's entrance when some of the boys dance to Heat Wave by Martha and the Vandellas. This is a very famous scene. You remember that dance we used to do at Fire Island? Man, that was in so far back, I think I've forgotten it. I remember it. <laughs> one, two, one, two. Oh, Christ. Single, single, dip. All right. Woo! Wait one, a minute. two, three, four. It's the geriatrics rockets. Get him up there, Don't dream this, Harry. It's the sensational menstruation. This 
works twofold. Firstly, the scene demonstrates that these characters have a history together, a real deep, long-standing friendship with its own rites and rituals, which is what makes the breakdown of the party so devastating. And secondly, it also allows the bottle movie to breathe a little bit because the heat wave was in fact a real dance performed by gay men on Fire Island in the 60s. And with the sequence, we get a view of gay social life beyond the confines of Michael's apartment. While preparing for the film, Frey can accompany Crowley to the pines on Fire Island to take in the environment and to really process what kind of cultural commonalities held such a group together. And there Friedkin said, as a straight man in a gay world, I got a sense of what it was like to be an outsider. And I think it's vital documentation because performance is a cornerstone of gay culture. And this particular generation of gay men had their history obliterated by the AIDS epidemic. So it's a very specific and I think very loving nod directly to its gay audience. It says like, we see you, we know you, we are you. And I'm glad that it remained in the film because another less empathetic director probably would have cut it entirely. That's really interesting. I didn't know that that was a real uh, dance, but obviously that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really cool because um, there are there are so many things in, in the movie that you see it and just coming like from my perspective and I'm just like, oh, well, that's that's a part of my culture. And it's very cool. It's very cool to see. And that's one of those uh, that I think is, is a little rewarding nugget uh, for an audience member. And I also appreciate the fact that it would go completely over the heads of a straight audience. And I like being able to hold something over the heterosexuals because I despise them, just as Edward Albee despised this play. So the title itself actually comes from A Star is Born. It's the scene where Judy Garland is struggling with stage fright at the studio, where James Mason says, Look, forget the camera. It's the downbeat club at three o'clock in the morning and you're singing for yourself and for the boys in the band, mainly for yourselves, the way I heard you. Just keep that picture in your mind. And the title was chosen, I think, to reflect a certain amount of camaraderie, uh, the sense that this is a really close-knit social group and that they are moving towards something that they have in common, maybe not even a goal, but just a kind of like a general sense of fate as gay people in America are kind of hurtling into the future, really blind to what is about to happen. And that's why I think the positioning, the positioning of the play in the summer of 1968 before Stonewall is such an interesting choice because the film could take place in 1970 but they made that decision not to have it take place then because there is really maybe even if they didn't necessarily realize it at the time as as a as a recognizable watershed but there is a big divide between those two moments 1968 and 1970 are like two completely different worlds i think that kind of thing it not only refers to to something like stonewall but i think it's you know the manson murders i think a lot of stuff happens in that interim where all of a sudden the idea of the subculture changes the subculture becomes the counterculture and a subculture is no longer underneath the surface it's no longer dormant it becomes very in people's faces and I think a lot of mainstream American people, which I mean white middle class people, found that really unsettling. Yeah, I think yeah. if you look at in context, 1968 as a year was such a tumultuous time on the world stage, but particularly in America, sort of everything explodes at once in this one year and people become a lot more aware of social issues. They become a lot more aware of, I guess, different subcultures that they probably hadn't considered before because they'd never come across them in their own, you know, white middle American life. And obviously the civil rights movement had been building up through this decade, but with the death of 
and Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy and the Chicago Democratic National Convention, people are a lot more aware politically and a lot more aware socially. So I can definitely see this as a microcosm of 1968 being quite significant in encapsulating that moment. Yeah, there's a sense of potential in the air. There's like a buzz in the air in 68 that everybody describes that had really dissipated by 1970. By 1970, the, the Vietnam War is on a downswing. Everything is, it, it kind of feels like that decade of activism is really starting to slow down. Everything is stopping. There's no longer, um, there's no longer, it's no longer pressing anymore. And I think it also happens because that younger generation of hippies, you know, who've been kind of for for whatever reason, a lot of times out of their own personal gain, been, been the impetus behind bringing a lot of these issues to the forefront within their own homes. I'm not giving hippies credit for like the civil rights movement or whatever, but for like bringing up to piss off their parents, you know, in the suburbs, they had kind of by that point in time kind of settled back into life because, you know, you can only continue not bathing for so long before you're <laughs> like, this kind of sucks. And so I feel like white, white people, white, middle-class, straight, middle American, politically conservative or middle of the road people felt probably a lot less understanding and forgiving in 1970 than they maybe they were in 68 when there was still a level of curiosity in the air. Yeah, I think probably the ascension of Nixon, I guess, makes them feel like, oh, that part is over. Fuck Nixon. All my homies hate Richard Nixon. We're going to get into, I think, the real meat and potatoes of this, something that we can talk about because this is our, up our alley. This is what this podcast is about. So this is question is, how does old Hollywood relate to this movie? The only thing mature means to me is Victor Mature. I can understand people having an affinity for the stage, but movies are such garbage. Who can take them seriously? Well, I'm sorry if your sense of art is offended. Odd as it may seem, there was no Schubert Theater in Hot Coffee, Mississippi. However, thanks to the silver screen, your neurosis has got style. There are flourishes in the movie, as well as in the stage play, that grant us a little window into how gay men of Crowley's generation internalized Tinseltown's lessons, particularly when it came to how to be a man in a world that repudiates softness and sentiment. And Crowley employs the vernacular of American film the same way that Todd Haynes does in like his moody Cirque homages and in kind of a similar way to how John Waters does in his satires of, you know, 50s, you know, bourgeois femininity. What is really most appealing, I think, about Crowley's Hollywood is how it relates to loneliness. Pop culture sustains his characters until they drop dead of malnutrition. Many people have compared Crowley's work to Albie's work. But for me, I think he's really more of a William Inge. Um, because Inge understood popularity and fame and notoriety as all say, uh, sides of the same die. And he understood them to be an opiate for a people, in this case, mid-century Americans, who felt so debased by what they had built as a country that they lived entirely on dreams. And Crowley interprets Hollywood as mythology and as a result makes really brilliant use of the foregone conclusions of mythology that the culture that made it has long since vanished, that the figures who populated it never existed at all, and instead, pop culture becomes really a shorthand to express feelings that cannot be articulated otherwise. Maybe because they're shameful, or maybe because they aren't really conducive to speech. But I think, particularly in The Boys in the Band, they're feelings that simply don't need to be signaled any other way. And the characters in The Boys in the Band speak in code, the code of mid-century gay men whose lifetime span the naming and then the disavowal of the closet. I think it's really interesting to see all the ways in which even truly arcane pop culture references band these guys together. 
Hey, I wonder where Harold is. Yeah, where is the frozen fruit? <laughs> Emery refers to Harold as the frozen fruit because of his former profession as an ice skater. She used to be the Vera Ruber Rolston of the Borscht Circuit. I mean, the whole thing is just like... That's a deep ass cut, you know, and I really appreciate that. And that's, I think, is coming back from Crowley, like a lot of people, being somebody who grew up isolated and for whom the movies were really a lifeblood and they were a connection to a world that was full of interesting people who also had big ideas and who wanted things out of life and how that experience of going to the movies and kind of forging your own identity out of little bits and pieces of, you know, Donna Reed or whatever is like, it's kind of a lost art. Now I think the kids have moved on to Vocaloids or K-pop or something. Riverdale, you know, but there was a point in time in which, you know, Maria Montez, who of all the people to be referenced is, is referenced in this movie, Maria Montez becomes like, she's like sign language or something. And that's how, that's how you communicate. And this is just like, it's a total dying art form, this particular kind of, of gay slang. And again, AIDS wiped out most of it, but it's really elaborate and it's really cool to see it in action. Where did you find this trash? Second Avenue, leaning against a lamppost. <laughs> With an orchid behind my ear and big red lip painted over the lip line. Just like Maria Montez. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> what have you got against Maria? She was a good woman. Maybe it works in the film version because if you go to the movies, it's like, if you're the kind of person who goes to the movies, you're the kind of person who's maybe always gone to the movies. So maybe it plays better for straight audiences and I'm assuming it does, but... Again, there are a lot of very specific uh, nods in this movie to something that really is like that kind of campy, the campiness that really is just inherent to gay culture, like Victor Mature. You know, in the in the play, Michael does, uh, he does a Barbara Stanwyck impression. There's Betty Grable dialogue. You know, there's this whole, there's all this stuff. I mean, why Captain Butler? How do you talk? I mean, there's all these, all these things that um, are kind of blinking. You miss them, but I, I just think are endlessly fascinating. Forget your troubles. Come on, get happy. You better chase all your cares away. What's more boring than a queen doing a Judy Garland imitation? A queen doing a Betty Davis imitation. And even the books in the background, you know, you see uh, the films of Joan Crawford is held and used as a prop at one point. It's just, it's very cool. It's very cool to me. I do have this overwhelming urge to look around the apartment and look at those books and look at the pictures and just like kind of take everything in because there's just so much it's a very tactile like experience that you kind of wish you could have to just explore that and see what it was built out of and so little of it really is is focused on a lot of it's like i said it's like a very blink and you miss it like the bob taylor headshot you know yeah um, we only really linger on things a couple times like the, the gloria swanson uh norma desmond costume sketch right before emory does his you know I'm not ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. Uh, but <laughs> we only really focus on these things uh, occasionally, but they're there. They're there everywhere in the movie. And one example from Mark Crowley's own life that I think illustrates this weird sense of humor that he has is that uh, a gift that he once gave to Lenny Dunn, who was Dominic Dunn's wife, was a pillow that he had monogrammed RDW and then singed like it belonged to Rebecca DeWinter and then... <laughs> Caught on fire in the burning of Manderley. Oh my god. 
god i want that what the fuck i know so it's really just like you know deep 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 cuts oh and there's even bits and pieces in, in the dialogue when you can tell they happen really 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 fast where kenneth nelson is doing impressions of people uh he does Catherine hepburn at one point again it's so gay i love it so much it's just so delightfully gay no one else would have made this movie i can't believe Friedkin allowed all the stuff to happen but Friedkin had a weird attitude towards letting actors kind of let their freak flag fly Unless it was Gina Gershon. Uh, he was really mean to Gina Gershon. But I guess what I, I think the point I'm trying to make here is I think Crowley sees Hollywood as what it is, which is just very moving and very beautiful and very sad. And that it kind of gives people a way out of engaging with what's really in front of them. Because instead they stick to cliché. They stick to mimicry because they're afraid of being honest. But at the same time, there's there's been a certain criticism, especially recently, which says that really what's powerful about this movie is that you get to see, in one academic terms, acts of gaiety. Just the sheer act of seeing a gay character played by a gay actor engaging with something so fundamental to gay culture as you know Judy Garland or something is really empowering and I think really important, especially for the historical record, because the relative anonymity of the cast of this movie is what allows that to work. You are never going to see that with any of the main major Hollywood actors of this period who, who are gay. That's It's not going to happen because the pressures of stardom are too intense, but because these are New York theater people, they can do that. And that's what I think is part of the reason why this movie is not just a filmed play. It's like a filmed experience of a play. Uh, one thing that I want to address, in addition to all the other things that I want to address, is um, how we kind of are at a very, very, very specific moment in the screen treatment of homosexuality. This is going to be a diatribe, but whatever, fast forward, I don't give a fuck. So throughout the history of American film, we typically see male homosexuality as something pathological and female homosexuality as situational. And they're both degrading and insulting depictions in their own ways, but they're still distinct experiences on film. And that's largely because the cultural narrative of Hollywood cinema is concerned with conquering women and breaking down and regulating their desires. So lesbianism in Hollywood movies, and certainly within the legal system derived from English common law, is like misguided but not irreparable. The group from 1966 is a, a good example of this and I think one that still rings true today um, because the idea in that movie is like how can Candace Bergen be so beautiful and a lesbian at the same time? Because that kind of thing is only for girls who aren't attracted to men. And that's not the same attitude that's taken with male homosexuality. Um, I think it's not only the conflation that's being made in this era in which the film is being made, uh, the conflation between consenting adult behavior and exploitative power dynamics like child molestation or whatever, um, but also the concept that nothing is so right and so rewarding as the love of a good woman. Uh, one fairly accessible example of this is Deborah Carr magically curing John Carr of his leanings in teen sympathy. Yes, for now, when you talk about this, and you will be kind. <laughs> um, <laughs> because coming off the 1950s, the American woman is a Madonna. She's strong and she's capable, but she's maternal and feminine. And then in the 60s, however, as we experience what Friedkin called our national nervous breakdown, 
The goalposts of womanhood are moved at both ends. At one end, women are entering the workforce and asserting themselves economically in a way they haven't since the Second World War. And then at the other end, women are entering the counterculture and they're asserting themselves sexually in a way they really hadn't since the 20s. And so both threaten the hegemony of the housewife. And so then, so what does this have to do with a movie about the worst birthday party ever? Uh, I'm getting to it. I feel like it's important to provide context since the homophobia that we know today doesn't quite square with the homophobia of yore. They're, they're very different. The contours, the societal models that mid-century homophobia invokes are really, they really differ quite a bit. And since the American woman as of the 60s was no longer this unassailable paragon of virtue, the general public started to get it into their heads that homosexuality like drugs or free love or radical politics or any of the other things that old people like Bob Hope shat themselves over It was alluring. It was seductive. It was this kind of tantalizing time bomb. And straight people were no longer looking at gay men and seeing abject misery. They were no longer seeing freaks. What they were instead seeing was a class of young men with immense social mobility who could pursue careers without the burden of providing for wives and children. These were men who could go anywhere. They could do anything. And most importantly, they could have relationships on their own terms, largely without monogamy. And that scared the hell out of them. Dr. Joel Fort, who's an interesting figure in the history of psychiatry, was a go-to expert on the subject in the late 60s. And when interviewed, he would remind journalists and readers that in his words, heterosexuality can compete with homosexuality. By which he meant that sexual orientation was not something people were lured into, but something inherent to someone's identity. And he saw a rising panic amongst older people who feared that young men found homosexuality appealing the same way that they found dodging the draft appealing. In their minds, it wasn't about attraction. It was about upsetting the status quo and about glorifying abnormalities and about finding the easy way out of adult responsibilities, which is a very bleak way of looking at it, but very Reagan. So this is one of the core issues in The Boys in the Band. Uh, Alan, who represents this older social order that finds homosexuality repulsive, cannot fathom why Hank, who is a handsome, athletic, masculine man, would leave his wife for Larry. And he tries in vain to bring Hank back into the fold, begging him to leave the party. He needs Hank to reconsider his path. But Michael, who is, after all, the protagonist and kind of, you know, the audience stand-in, except we're not quite so racist, argues that Alan does this because he's in doubt about his own sexuality. Because if Hank could leave a woman for a man like Larry, then Alan could certainly leave a woman for a man like Justin Stewart. I think this is a point that Crowley tries to emphasize. So Dr. Fort, unlike most practitioners of his day, didn't believe in conversion therapy, but instead he addressed the conditions, social and emotional, that made his patients engage in self-destructive behaviors. He theorized that rejection by family and community was what made gay men feel unworthy worthy of love. And then as a result, they chased anonymous thrills too superficial to kind of touch this hurt inside of them. And the compartmentalization of pre-modern gay life is something that I don't feel is often adequately addressed in art because we have these two models in mind, um, which are the totally unapologetic, highly sexed, coastal sophisticate, and then the wholly closeted, rural, poor, uneducated town queer drifting through life in unrelenting pain. And media that's set in the past typically prefers to take on one of these two models. But as the 20th century wore on, that dichotomy was nullified, partly through urbanization, as more and more of the country starts to develop a burgeoning gay scene. It's no longer restricted to New York and San Francisco and Boston. But also because the homosociality of two world wars 
kind of created a nascent sense of otherness that gave rise slowly but surely to a distinct political identity. It's no longer about these two opposite poles. It's more about what exists in between. And what's really marvelous about Mark Crowley as a writer and really unfortunate about Mark Crowley as a person is that he had been both of these archetypes within the span of his own lifetime. And so he was writing about his generation of men who were young enough to have been instilled with conformist mid-century values, but they were too old to flout them entirely because unlike the baby boomers who followed them, they still desired the trappings of adulthood like careers and uh, religion and decent relationship with their parents. And these elements of growing up depended upon the locking away of this inaccessible inner self. The gay men that he knew, like the gay men that he saw at the party that started this whole thing, felt unloved and unwanted. And so they staved off intimacy because it threatened to reconcile all the disparate parts of their being. And so it isn't a coincidence that the pacing of the plot ricochets between scenes with Michael and Donald. And in these scenes, we learn about their sense of displacement, about Michael's alcoholism and his internalized homophobia and how cruel he can be. And their relationship is about shared trauma, which they relive during Donald's visits every Saturday night where they share bedclothes and toothbrushes and horrible memories about tricking in the 50s before anyone was out. And neither wants to be gay, but without that horrible quirk of nature or nurture or whatever it is, they wouldn't have each other. There's this bit at the end of the film that didn't make it into the final cut where Michael tells Donald that he needs him. But because he's the kind of person that he is, one whose ability to love is so stunted and withered, he can't express it without comparing them to Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. So their intimacy, like the intimacy between, say, Michael and Harold, who are implied to have maybe kind of an extensive romantic history, or between Bernard and Emery, who have a nightmare of a relationship, it's left unspoken, or at least spoken of in a roundabout way, because to discuss it is to risk it collapsing entirely. It's like a weeping wound at the core of every relationship in the film. Everyone is struggling with intimacy in this movie. It's so bleak. <laughs> it's such a, yeah. but it's so true and it's so yeah. horrible. And so you can see why people saw this movie and they're like, God, fucking damn it. I don't want to live like this, you know? Yeah. I, there, are, there are definitely, I, I've read in the past, some people saw this movie and they felt immediately seen. And then other people saw this movie and it scared the shit out of them. And they went back, you know, they kind of, you know, regressed in on themselves because it was like, if this is the best that we got, then I don't want to deal with this. And so I understand the, 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 the negativity, but I've also thought it's just such an interesting study of human relationships because mm -hmm. what drew Freak into the project is that it's about alienation and it's about loneliness. And it's the idea that, again, you could be at a party with people who are supposed to be your best friends and then they'll eat you alive because they want to, because no one's happy with who they are. Except the Jeeves. We would never do that to each other. Oh, never. I mean, have I was cool going to say, um, is this like you preparing us for when we do finally get the old clear <laughs> to come to America or what? Well, that's why when we watched it, um, when Alan beats the shit out of Emery, I was like, that's going to be LAX in 2021 once they lift the travel ban. <laughs> I'm just going to pop you in the mouth. I'm going to pop you in the mouth. 
you know. I'd like to see you try. No, I know in this situation, really, the roles would be reversed, but I am taller than you are. So, and I'd also be wearing a suit. That's the thing. You're, you've been on a plane. You can't be wearing a tuxedo. I can be wearing a tuxedo because I'm just going to be like in a car. It's a lot harder. You could be wearing a sweater that isn't really a sweater. Tiff has, takes issue with the fact that Emery's clothes are described as a sweater when he's not wearing a sweater. That bothers her a lot. Emery repeatedly refers to his t-shirt as a sweater and his lasagna as a casserole. Yeah, Emery's got problems. And then the whole thing with the pronouns. I'm not going to condone Alan's actions, but also Emery would always be the most annoying person you've ever met in <laughs> any situation. I'm not going to say that he should launch at him while calling him, you know, like, a, you know, a pansy and, and beat the shit out of him. But I do I not understand why anyone else at the party hasn't beaten the shit out of Emory yet. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's the problem there. If we could just learn not to hate ourselves. Quite so very much. I know. I know. Inconceivable as it may be. You used to be worse than you are now. <laughs> Maybe with a lot more work, you, you'll be able to help yourself some more. If you try, huh? There are multiple scenes of this nature that were actually cut from the ending. Uh, one is a shot through the window of a coffee shop as Emery tries to comfort Bernard, who is still devastated by his role in the telephone game. And another is Harold and the cowboy hailing a cab, where Harold asks, are you good in bed? And Cowboy says, and this is one of Crowley's favorite lines not to make it into the movie, I'm not like the average hustler you'd meet. I try to show a little affection. It keeps me from feeling like such a whore. Oh, wow. He's a sad little man. He's wow. a sad little man who doesn't know who Sebastian Venable is. <laughs> and he doesn't know what a lasagna is. Neither does Emery. <laughs> Even though Emery made it. Even though Emery made it. Like, he just goes to this party. He was just expecting, you know, make 20 bucks, do a little bit of plowing. And then he was expecting to go home at midnight because he wanted to um, hit the clubs He wanted to hit the clubs. He just wanted to hit the bar. He's just a fun kid. And he's like, I'm not here for your weird middle-aged bullshit. I got stuff to do. I'm still young and hot and not bald yet. I can't relate to that because I was never young and hot. Luckily, I'm not bald yet. 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 <laughs> There's always a chance. <laughs> yeah, let's see what happens at LAX, huh? Yeah, <laughs> You're just going to scalp me. <laughs> wig. A wig. Through all this, we remain on this precipice of intimacy with very little resolve. And I wish that they hadn't cut these scenes. One, because I love Robert Latourneau, and I think he's a really interesting performance when he has very little to work with. And so I'd always like to see him get more dialogue. But I also think you need that end cap for Emery and Bernard, because it's such a contentious relationship between the two of them. The point I think that Crowley was trying, I'm going to get into this later, so I should probably say this, but I think the point that Crowley was trying to make with Emery and Bernard is that they both have these hangups to the degree where they have to bond with each other because they are both such outsiders in the way because the world is, the, the gay world in and of itself is so prejudiced that it's like, Bernard's best friend still has to be somebody who just, as Michael says, Uncle Tom's him all night because Emery's like the best he's going to get in terms of friendship, which again is a horrible, I think, indictment of the world that this movie takes place in. But it's true and it's, it's true to life. I, I, I'm fairly certain. I wouldn't be shocked. I mean, we've all had that friend who like was mean to us and we just had to be friends with them out of necessity, like whether it was in high school or whatever. But what's really interesting about this one is how much Bernard seems to love Emery. Call him. Don't Emery. Since when are you telling him what to do? 
I care. I'm pissed. I'll do anything three times. Don't, please. I said call in. Don't. You'll be sorry. Take my word for it. <laughs> I got to lose. Your dignity, that's what you've got to lose. Well, that's a knee slapper. I love your telling him about dignity when you allow him to degrade you constantly by Uncle Tomming you to death. He can do it, Michael. I can do it. You can't do it. Isn't that discrimination? I don't like it from him. I don't like it from me. I do it to myself and I let him do it. Let him do it because it's the only thing that to him makes him my equal. The scene that freaking really did end up regretting cutting, however, I think really would have changed the film's reception for, for better or worse. I think for the worse in the short term, but much better in the long term. So in the release version, we last see Larry entering Michael's bedroom where Hank is sitting. In the shooting script... And in the scene that was filmed but ultimately cut, instead, the camera follows Larry into the room. He goes over to the bed where Hank is sitting, implied to have been crying, and he takes hold of Hank's face and he kisses him. Keith Prentice and Lawrence Luck and Bill were very uncomfortable filming the scene. And with that discomfort, coupled with what damage the visual could do to the film in terms of like censorship and public response, the decision was ultimately made to take it out. But Friedkin recalled, uh, it would undoubtedly have been the first time such a scene was portrayed in a mainstream film. Luck and Bill and Prentice reluctantly agreed to do it, then after objections from their agents refused. Such a scene would ruin their careers, they were told. Martin and I talked to them for weeks as their anxieties grew, along with their resolve not to do the scene. When we were about to reach the end of the schedule, they realized the scene's importance and its value as a statement about their character's commitment. They were putting their trust in me to shoot the scene sensitively, and I tried to approach it as just another shot. Much later in the cutting room, we felt we didn't need it, that it would only sensationalize the moment. In retrospect, I think we should have kept it. So Freakin had said that if he could do the movie over again, he would have retained that in the cut. That does explain a lot, because their ending is very abrupt. Like, yeah. they just kind yeah. of vanish, and then you remember at the very end when Michael says, uh, maybe when I get back, they'll be gone or whatever. It's like, oh yeah, they're, they're still here. <laughs> they just disappeared. And the bit where he's taunting Alan, he's like, what do you think they're doing up there? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think's happening up there? What do you think's so hot? What do you, what do you think's happening up there? But I, I think it would have been good. One of the problems that people have with this movie was that it basically felt like no one had the capacity to love each other. Yeah. And I think that, that would have been important. And also because it's also hard for us to look back on it now because now we're so like concerned with like heteronormativity and monogamous relationships are everything. You can be in a polycule with for people, you know, kind of thing. This whole, like, there's been this big backlash against this kind of, like, white picket friends, gay monogamous idealization of, of heterosexual union, you know, all that kind of bullshit. But I think it would have been a really powerful statement to say that, like, even though this is really a horrible and oppressive world to live in, sometimes, you know, it's not all that bad. And you can find people who are worth hanging on to. So I think I think Friedkin was, in fact, a pussy for cutting it. <laughs> I would have kept it. I think it's a great scene. It's 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 sad, I think. Because I think it also goes to help kind of um, resolve some of the issues with intimacy in the film. I feel like because there's nothing more intimate than a kiss and there is one other kiss in the movie two other kisses in the movie but they're played for comedic effect when when the door is opened and then and then cowboy kisses Harold and then I can't remember who else he kisses and, but that's played that's played for comedic effect and this was not to be played this is going to be played straight you know Friedkin said it was a very passionate kiss Friedkin's cheering on the sidelines he's got like one of those big foam fingers you know <laughs> he's got do you guys remember that girl who had that like poster that said like let my gaze marry do you oh, remember fuck. it had a picture of like Clayne from Glee. That was freaking <laughs> off of the corner, you know? <laughs> 
but whatever. Anyway, freaking wanted it, but you know, whatever. You can't force them to, and it obviously would have probably damaged their careers in the short term. And you gotta look out for number one, man. Gotta look out for number one. There's only one way to get things done. You'll find out. The only way to the top is looking out for number one. So I thought we could break out into a little discussion here about uh, all the other problems that show up in this movie. I was thinking self-esteem. I was thinking beauty. I was thinking social standing because we have a very obvious racial dynamic there there with Bernard, who is the only character of color in the play. And then we also have this really palpable kind of unsettling tug of war between various characters over personal appearance. What I am, Michael, is a 32-year-old ugly, pockmarked Jew fairy. And if it takes me a while to pull myself together, and if I smoke a little grass before I get up the nerve to show my face to the world, it's nobody's goddamn business but my own. Harold is this pockmarked Jew fairy, you know, who spends all this time, you know, as Michael says, you know, digging his tweezers and his cheeks to deliberately mutilate his skin and then spending all of his time putting ointments on and stuff. And Michael, who we know has known Harold for a long time and does love him to some degree, really seems to, to take joy in the fact that Harold is just destroying himself physically and that's because Michael is getting older and he's not the spring chicken he used to be it becomes something that's really vicious you know as, as Harold says you hateful sow you know it really uh it's a it's a really important issue I think underpinning this and it's something you don't really see in other movies one because straight men are repulsive so they don't care about how they look and also, the problem when you have a movie with women in it is that there is kind of a misogynistic angle towards having women flagellate themselves over not being beautiful enough for some imagined standard. So you get to have an important conversation about beauty and about physical attraction completely outside the confines of the dominant narrative, which at the time is heterosexual romance but because there's no man and woman omar sharif voice let's kiss thing involved you kind of strip you get to strip that whole thing away and so instead you get to have what i think is a really human conversation about what it's like to be beautiful and desirable and what it's like to be hideous physical beauty isn't everything thank you quasimodo so that's what i wanted to discuss with you guys i guess is um how insecurities manifest themselves in this movie and how it's a I think a really frank appraisal of people's insecurities about where they're from about what they do for a living there's this it's it's not it's more in the in the script and in, in, the, in the play than it is in the movie but there's this part of the reason why Michael is constantly dunking on Donald is that he thinks that Donald scrubbing floors for a living is completely beneath him. And Donald's like, I do it because I'm a failure and I'm not good at anything else. And Michael's like, well, you should just not work at all. Like me. Donald's like, well, that's not how that works. (laughs) You know, social standing is a big thing in this movie. Yeah, there's a runner I really like. Uh, Michael changes his sweater like 15 times. And I think that's a really interesting kind of encapsulation of the, like, insecurity that he's just absolutely plagued by constantly, which leads him to be this incredibly deeply vicious person to, like, everyone he knows. It says a lot in just those movements where he's he's never quite satisfied with his appearance and with, with the outfit that he's got going. And it's uh, pretty skillful as, like, a, a stage direction that he has. I, yeah, I think it's interesting how the film functions on both, like, a personal vanity 
level, personal insecurity level, like Michael and Harold both have these great insecurities that manifest themselves in wildly different ways, but they're both equally vicious. But then also on a class level and I'd say even on a racial level, I like that it functions that way. And it is a good encapsulation of... I guess that time and it's very different to something that you'd see today, particularly when it comes to the frankness of their insecurity being portrayed. A lot of films nowadays tend to be like really introspective in analysing that kind of behaviour and like in because in this movie Michael's insecurity it's right there for everybody to see but Michael himself never really addresses it and never really cottons on to the fact that a lot of his insecurities are manifesting in this really horrible and vicious way like he has I guess some inclination but if it was made today, it would be something that is really in your face that he works out. So appreciate that because often when you're so deep in your insecurities, you can't see them and you cannot logically separate yourself from your emotion. And I think that his performance of this is so beautifully done. The total breakdown of his character towards the end of the movie where he ends up crying in Donald's arms at the realisation of what he's done but not why he's done it is it's amazing to see and really he was made for that part if Paul Newman was imagining himself in that role well I'm sorry that is just fucking impossible (laughs) he already had that part that's what we call a cat on a hot tin roof bitch you already had it you already had your 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 swing at it and like even I guess to Alan's own insecurity like Alan's character is there obviously as a catalyst to everything kind of kicking off. But also half the time you're just like, man, fucking get out. Nobody asked. Trying to get Hank to come away from everything that's going on and for him to just keep viciously attacking Michael's friends. It's like, leave? You can leave at any time. He, like, is inserting himself into this situation, which is, like, I think um, very interesting. And to me, it says a lot more about his character than he would ever admit himself as a character. Um, But I think... The film's real strength for me is absolutely that dialogue between each of the characters. It feels so natural and so of the time uh, and it's so smart and funny. It's something that's kind of been lost in cinema now. Like I don't think anyone now can really write dialogue with that level of intimacy and that I guess feeling that these are real people, they're real friends, no matter how much they love or hate each other, they still kind of know each other on this level where they can speak this way to one another. And I will just say when we watched this, my Australian ears thought when they were calling people fairy, they were saying fairy, like the boat. (laughs) And I was like, why are they calling each other fairies? (laughs) And then Tiff had to tell me, I was like, oh, they're saying fairy. (laughs) Now, there is such a fascinating variety of slurs in this movie. Um, I believe it was the first American film to ever use the word cunt, which, you know, that's a big one. You got racial slurs, baby. You got misogynistic slurs. You got homophobic slurs. They are coming out. They're just, they're just coming out the hoo-ha. We got them all over the place. 
But that's the idea. These people only speak to each other very, very, very frankly. Like, you're a cunt. I hate you. I hope you fucking die. I mean, the whole scene where Michael basically just is like telling everybody gleefully that, you know, Harold has this stash of sleeping pills that one day he's going to take and he's finally going to shuffle off the mortal coil and uh, Harold's just sitting there eating his lasagna. It's, <laughs> it's, they either talk to each other like that or they speak entirely in code entirely in this language of, you know, of old Hollywood and of, and of pop culture and of, you know, it's it's so fascinating to me. One of my favorite bits of dialogue is the sequence where they're talking about the baths and then Bernard is making fun of Emery. You'll never learn to stay out of the baths, will you? The last time Emily was taking the vapors, this big hairy number strolls in. So Emily says, I'm just resting. And the big hairy number says, I'm just arresting. It was the vice. You have to tell everything, don't you? I think the terrible self-esteem that every single character has due to some, whatever it is, I think it also weirdly is in, like, is it totally in balance everything works everybody has their own little quirk as to why they're miserable and it flows beautifully between them I, this is also because you know i really love like victorian fiction like didactic like middlemarch shit where like everyone this person represents x y and z i love that kind of stuff so you know this is like this is this and this and this is this and this is this and sometimes people look at this and they're like well this you got the stereotypical nelly queen character and then you know you've got the the guy who's half in and half out of the closet and then you know you've got the you've got a token black character but to me it's like it's deeper than that notwithstanding some of those criticisms because i understand they're important criticisms but it's all a particular manifestation of what it means to be a person at this specific point in time Everybody wants something that they can't have because of the society in which they live, whether it's just a basic human understanding or they want to live in a way that they're not permitted to. You know, there's this running gag throughout the movie that Emery would make, you know, a great housewife if he weren't so goddamn ugly and everybody didn't find him so repulsive that he's better for anything more than a quick screw. It's it's sad, but it's honest in the same way. I think at one point Harold says to Michael something like, Oh, you know, you're willing to tell me things even my best friends wouldn't tell me that, that when they're really going at each other. That honesty is like a double-edged sword, you know. It's it's what makes them so close as a group of people, but it's also what threatens to absolutely implode everything at any given moment. Even before things really start to pop off, even after Alan starts throwing some hooks, you know, and, and, and Michael starts guzzling every single bottle of liquor in the apartment, even before that happens, there's still, there's the little sniping, there's the little jabs, you know, that, that they just can't resist because they can't talk to each other in a human way until it's almost like it's too late. It's harrowing. It's a harrowing movie to watch in a lot of ways. It's hard. It's a hard movie to watch. Yeah. And I just know people didn't like it when it first came out. They're like, ooh, that's a lot. I mean, though, it did provide a sense of comfort, though, because I was like, I don't think any meeting with Tiff and Candace would leave me with this level of just emptiness. That's so, so true. <laughs> you know, like things could get bad, but they'll never get that bad. It's it's really, uh, I keep going back around this in a circle every time I think about it, but I, I've seen different critics and different historians and different people who went up, grew up to be important people themselves, saying that when they saw this movie, it gave them the idea that as terrible as these friendships are, these people have friends. Because so many people who are seeing this movie live such isolated, desperate lives that it's like, oh my God, I could have my own clique of bitches 
because that's unthinkable to so many people, which is another sad thing, you know. And of course, some people ran screaming for the hills thinking, you know, this is what it's like to have other gay friends I don't want to make any at all. And then people were like, they're bros. They're bros who are constantly trying to stab each other in the back, but they're still bros. But they're still bros. Better some bros than no bros, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's also interesting how the power in the narrative seems to shift because sometimes somebody's in control of it and you think everything's going okay. And then it's like, uh-oh, it's not going okay at all. For the first, like, solid, like, hour of the film like Hank is a really kind of a pathetic character you know like you look at it like he's thrown his whole life away for Larry and Larry just cannot stop blowing every horn he comes across that's not there's a generation gap there you know they're a couple years apart Larry's a creative person who works in a creative field Hank smokes a pipe and teaches math. They're not compatible on that level. And you're like, why is this guy sticking around for this? But then as the night sort of continues and Larry really ends up backed into a corner and Hank gets to have that, Lawrence Luck and Bill does such a good job with that whole monologue where he talks about the first time he ever made love to a man. You get to see that it's like, oh, right, he does hold the upper card here because when you love somebody, you're willing to take those occasional or often, I guess in this case, humiliations and embarrassments because there's something there that you think is worth preserving. And, you know, Larry does love him in his own way. He will not stop being a whore. That's not going to happen anytime soon. But you get kind of a full circle arc there. And everybody really does kind of get a full circle arc except for Michael. Michael's full circle arc is going back exactly to where he started. Harold's going home with a very handsome boy at the end of the night. Michael says to Donald, I'll see you next week. Make sure you change my sheets upstairs because I don't know what they're getting into. And I'm going to go to mass because I hate myself. And it's like, is Michael just going to be this person for the rest of his life while the rest of them at least maybe are making some sort of change? But he probably will be because Michael's a terrible person. Yeah, Michael doesn't learn shit. Michael doesn't learn shit. But the thing is, and again, because Michael is based off Mark Crowley, I mean, this is Crowley really exercising some of his demons, you know? This is Crowley as the drunk, belligerent, angry person who lashes out at others and who struggles with sobriety and has all these hang-ups about being Catholic and his hang-ups about his sexuality and hang-ups about growing older and no longer being, you know, as beautiful as he once was. And it's it's like, you understand why Natalie Wood had to get the man into psychoanalysis. One thing that we repeatedly see throughout the movie is kind of grasping for what the origins of homosexuality are. The mother-son bond in particular reappears like again and again. You know, it's what Michael calls the Evelyn and Walt syndrome in reference to Donald's loathing of his own parents. It's like, however, your parents fucked you up so bad that this is what you turned into because they have to have somebody to blame. It can't just be like, that's the way you are, because if that's the way you are, why would you turn out to be something that brings you so much pain? And so people are seeking this answer and they're not getting the answer. And I think the characters who are most self-possessed in the play, somebody like Emery, Emery has all these problems, but he's never had a problem with that. He can evade that because he's not looking for an answer as to why it is because that's who he been this whole time or you have somebody like Hank who doesn't begin to acknowledge this until he's well into adulthood but because he made a conscious decision to embrace it and to leave his old life behind it's like that's a measure of agency and part of the bond that Michael and Donald have is that between the two of them they will never stop trying to figure that out they are both going to waste the rest of their lives in therapy trying to talk it out with some overpaid hack for $200 an hour trying to figure out what it is that happened in their child 
childhoods that turned them into 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 something that is so repulsive to society. And you know that's why they're bros. Sad. That's some sad shit. It's that's really sad. fucking sad. <laughs> that's a good application of my of my of my trademark. Uh, phrase because it really is sad but you know (laughs) this is the truth that wins out at the end of the film homosexuality is an undeniable element of your character and harold has that great monologue you know you will always be a homosexual you can try to live a heterosexual life and if you want it badly enough but it's never going to you know it's not going to stick now it's my turn and ready or not michael here goes you're a sad and pathetic man You're a homosexual and you don't want to be. But there's nothing you can do to change it. Not all your prayers to your God. Not all the analysis you can buy in all the years you've got left to live. You may very well one day be able to know a heterosexual life. If you want it desperately enough. If you pursue it with the fervor with which you annihilate. But you'll always be homosexual as well. Always, Michael. Always. Until the day you die. (laughs) Friends. Thanks for the nifty party. And the super gift. Charles Kaiser, the historian, pinpointed Harold's lines right there, reminding Michael that he will always be gay no matter what he does, as what resonated so deeply with gay audiences, particularly with younger ones who, at the time of seeing the boys in the band, might still harbor some secret hope of growing out of it, uh, of a hope that it's a phase. He argues that along with that, these men realized that since they would always be gay, it was about time they did something about it. They had to change the societal constraints under which they live. And that might be too pat. I don't, I don't know. But I think the zeitgeist was there. And again, like I said earlier, at the time of the Stonewall riots, this movie was being filmed. There is something happening in the air. There is a sense that people are fed up and they're not they're not going to take it. But in, and then in the sense, it's such an empathetic film. And it's such a... I think in its own perverted way, such a sweet movie that it's really hard to understand how Friedkin could make something like this that's so sensitive and so elegant and then something so egregiously homophobic as cruising. And I don't think Friedkin understood that cruising was homophobic. He didn't get that at all. He's such a weird, inconsistent person because I remember I was reading something recently and then they were like, somebody was out, they were asking him about the boys in the band. Like, how how did you feel as a gay director? I mean, as a gay director, as a straight director, stepping into such an obviously like gay environment. And he was like, well, I don't identify as straight or gay. I just identify as a human. It's like, okay, moving on, Mr. Oh. Friedkin. It's like, you know, he's... But at the same time, when they're making this movie, he's like, look, I love pussy. I love tits. I am not one of these people. You know, he's got the whole thing going on. And they're like, oh God, another one, you know? So Friedkin is really weird. But Cruising, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Cruising. But Cruising, it's just so irritating to me. Because Cruising has all the makings of a really good movie. But 
it's such a nasty moral to it and such a nasty undercurrent. That's like, how can you go from such a such, a, such an understanding depiction of, of a topic and then go later on? But he always insisted that cruising wasn't about gay people or about being gay. He said it specifically was about this leather S&M subculture of people who just got off and hurting each other. And then, of course, then it would turn into crime. But I don't know. I still, I still have trouble reconciling the two in my mind. But, you know, also he made that one movie with Shaq and Nick Nolte and he also made The Exorcist. So there's a lot of things you have trouble with reconciling when it comes to William Friedkin. He made some choices. Not all of them were good. No, not all of them were good. But he likes really, he likes ambiguity. He really likes frenetic editing. One of the things that's really interesting about cruising, I'm just going to talk about cruising for just one more second. But one of the things that's really interesting about cruising is that when you see people murdered in cruising, it doesn't always logically follow. Sometimes it'll be people who you thought were already dead who will reappear. It's like, it's really weird. And like they used the killer in every scene, oftentimes will be somebody who you already saw in the movie, but it's a different actor every time. There's a shot at the beginning and end that kind of bookends the movie of somebody entering this bar, the mine shaft, you know, where Al Pacino is trying to investigate this. And we never learn who this character is, but it's implied that he's the guy. But then the question is, is everyone a serial killer? Like, are these all completely unconnected murders coming from a culture of violence? So Freakin loves movies that have no answer. And I think that also is part of the reason why he handles the material so deftly in this, because there are so many questions that do go unanswered. The principal which is, what did Alan want to tell Michael? What's that about? Crowley, Mark Crowley insisted that he didn't know, which to me is useless because you wrote the fucking play. But uh, at the time of the filming, Freakin thought that Alan's issue was like unrelated. Like it was like he had left, Alan had left Fran, his wife, that's what it was about. But he says that he looks back on it now and he thinks that Michael's suspicions were correct and that there's a reason why Alan is going to Michael out of all the people in the world. Yeah, that's the kind of sense that I get from it. Particularly with like how I guess aggressively Alan is acting the entire time. Like like he doesn't need to be there. He could leave at any time and yet he chooses to stay. Which I think is one of the things that leads me to believe that Michael's right. But then Alan just totally shuts down because he's in a quite a confrontational, you know, like an animal in a corner. He lashes out instead of thinking about why he's there objectively. I, so. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the problem is that Alan thinks that he's going to talk to his old pal Mickey, but Mickey doesn't exist anymore. Now Mickey is a bitter aging queen who loves to throw vicuña sweaters on the floor of the bathroom you know it's not that 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 old friend that all american boy doesn't exist anymore he's not a person now michael's just you know michael's just michael and I think that, I think Peter White plays Alan really well with a really good sense of ambiguity. I always like to watch, every time I rewatch the movie, which I do, I do a lot because I love this movie, um, I like to focus on different aspects of different performances. And Alan White, because he's somebody who's, who's coming from soaps, is really good at watching other people in a scene. He is always, he's never looking at who you think he's looking at. He really plays it like Alan is really trying to subtly like suss out a lot of the situation around him. People will be having a conversation and he won't be looking at the person he's talking to. He'll be looking at somebody else across the room. Like Alan's very curious about what is going on. And that's part of the reason why I think Alan is so um, angry when he finds out what's going on with Hank and why Michael takes such great glee in being like, oh, you know, you think Hank's such an attractive guy and you can't stop slobbering over him. Well, you know what? You fucked Justin Stewart. I mean, it's, you know, that's Michael is glorying in it because Alan's really given him the material all night long to do so. Because Michael is a very perceptive person, not regarding himself, but just in general. Because he's mean. He can. He can. Say, he's a bully. 
Michael's a mean girl. So what's actually also, I think, really kind of cool about this is that the cast embraced this opportunity to try and maybe change the minds of some people who otherwise would not engage with this topic. Um, at one point, a few of them went to visit a church in New York City. I think it was a Lutheran church. And they performed a couple scenes from the play. And then they sat down and they did a bit, little, bit of like a let's wrap Q&A with parishioners so that people could be like, I have a question, blah, blah, blah. And like one of them would answer like, this is how this works. And this is, and I think that's, I think that's honestly very cool. And um, not something that a lot of people would have done because this is such a difficult play to be in and I think such a difficult role to be taking on at such a politically charged moment in history. It's obviously not a minority that's being treated well at the time. And to, to put yourself out there on the firing line, I think is really badass. And that's and incredibly I brave. That. I like that's I would not be able to do that. It just got like a really brief write up. And I think it was like the Times of the Village Voice or something. And then they were like, hey, you know, it's cool. You know, talking to them, they're not that different from us. Referring to like heterosexual <laughs> church girls. <laughs> it's cool stuff. I think they're a bunch of cool dudes. The press, unfortunately, did treat the cast as a little bit of like a sideshow attraction. Um, the interviews in this time are like a little hard to read. At one point, Leonard Fry got so tired of the bullshit that he told an interviewer, he just straight up just told him to ask, told her, I think, uh, to ask him outright if he was like Harold in that way. He was like, just fucking ask me. I'm tired of, I'm tired of hearing this question. We want to know whether or not I'm gay. And Cliff Gorman used some pretty unsavory language um, that I won't repeat here to separate himself from Emery. The kind of stuff you would never tell the New York Times today when you were being asked about your gay role. He was very emphatic about being a married heterosexual who loves boxing and country music, <laughs> and he's playing one specific queer for a living. And he kind of suggests between the lines that that's true of the others as well. We're all just actors. And I might be overly generous here, but I think he was probably trying to protect them from the scrutiny. But you know, it is what it is. Is it homophobic? Yes. But also, is it like, lay off Fry, stop asking him whether he... I'm going to spare you one of my horrible euphemisms. You know, I, I think that, I think that's, I think that's really maybe what he was trying to do. Because Cliff Gorman understood, I think, that because he was in the position of being one of the few gay, uh, <laughs> one of the few straight actors in the cast, that he was in a position where he could talk about his private life. He could bring Life magazine into his apartment and pose for pictures with his wife in a way that the other guys couldn't. And I think it's kind of maybe a happy accident that he ended up being really the breakout star of the play and of the film because he was able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the press in a way the others simply would not be able to. I like Cliff Gorman. He's a cool dude. Upon the film's release in March of 1970, the reviews were mixed to positive, with most of the praise coming from critics who had seen the play in its original run and enjoyed revisiting the cast chemistry. Um, a handful of honors were bandied about. Uh, Kenneth Nelson even received a Golden Globe nomination for Most Promising Newcomer of 1971, losing to James Earl Jones in The Great White Hope, which could be worse. Uh, Truman Capote lost to Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> one year. So, <laughs> but I do think, I think it's an excellent performance and Friedkin always thought that Nelson got robbed of an Oscar nomination because Michael is just such a, such a character. But the world had shifted so much from the closeted environment of 1965, 1966, 
to the very politically charged environment in 1970 that the film was not received as glowingly as the play had been. Boycotts ensued. There were very famous boycotts. Edward Albee articulated the fundamental issue with the boys in the band branching out into the straight world. He said that every time he saw the play, there were more straight people in the audience, and they were, in his words, so happy to be able to see people they didn't have to respect, which to me is some of the most damning criticism. The shame of the pre-Stonewall world was now shameful in and of itself. Uh, Leonard Fry compared it to Midnight Cowboy, which is another shocking movie that now seems quaint, but where Midnight Cowboy could kind of become an Oscar contender for industry types trying to, you know, look progressive because its homosexual content is relatively minor, Boys in the Band kind of just died off. Uh, fewer theaters booked the film than anticipated, and when it was all said and done, it was like virtually every other production made by Cinema Center Films, a box office loss. Ultimately, it was not the mass medium of cinema, but that of the turntable that kept its flame alive in the United States. Men who were afraid to be seen buying tickets to the movie, or boys who couldn't get into it since it was rated R, would instead purchase a recording of the play on vinyl, oftentimes by mail. And the records and the paperback editions of the script would ultimately prevent Crowley's work from slipping into obscurity here in the United States. But that's cold comfort considering that 12-year-old budding homosexuals in Salt Lake City don't have the financial backing to stage uh, theatrical productions. But a lot of kids got to hear this album. You know, uh, I think it was Mark Shaman who wrote the music for Hairspray, who said that he bought bought the album when he was in middle school and he learned the whole play by heart because it was like that was the their first brush with people like them which again is horrifying to some people for good reason the 180 was really hard on mark crowley his next few plays flopped and he started drinking again he was not that i feel this way but because some contingent of the drama world felt this way he was a, a failure and during the liberated 70s, Boys in the Band's popularity as a piece of theater waned in the United States, just as the play began to be disseminated throughout the rest of the world, where it relived its success in cultures that had been untouched by the gay rights movement. It was popular in Japan, for example, where Bernard is oftentimes played by a Korean. It's, uh, yeah, because the Japanese and the Koreans fucking hate each other. And there's quite a lot of discrimination between them. One indicator of how far the play's status fell within the next decade is that gay Gay is good, the phrase coined by activist Frank Kameny that came to define much of the post-Stonewall gay rights movement was popularized partly in response to the self-loathing that permeates boys in the band. People saw this movie and they're like, no, gay is good. And it's like, well, it's not really quite, no, I, I, well, like, yeah, I'm gay is good, but, you know, go off, I guess. So once again, Natalie Wood stepped in, bringing Crowley back out of his drinking by inviting him to write and produce Robert Wagner's detective program, Heart to Heart, which was, of course, a big smash. And Natalie successfully injected stability into Crowley's life once again, because she is a wonderful woman whom I adore. And for a while, the cast of The Boys in the Band also seemed to rebound from the film's failure. Cliff Gorman won a Tony in 1972 for his portrayal of Lenny Bruce, although he lost out on the part in the film adaptation to Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> and then Leonard Fry received a Best Supporting Actor Oscar nomination for his performance in Fiddler on the Roof in 1972, losing to Ben Johnson in The Last Picture Show which is not a bad performance to lose to. If I had to pick one, I wouldn't be mad. Uh, Leonard Fry, as an aside for Todd, also has a really good bit on uh, Mary Tyler Moore when he's the only student at Ted Baxter's famous broadcasting school. Oh, one yeah. Of my favorites, yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Is this the room where the Ted Baxter famous broadcaster school is supposed to meet? To the best of my knowledge, yes. <laughs> Where are the other students? Are you the teachers? Yes. Yes, we are the uh, faculty. 
<laughs> You're late. <laughs> Class was supposed to start at 8.30. It's 8.40. Well, you, you mean that everybody left because we're 10 minutes late? Nobody left. Nobody was here to leave. <laughs> Come here. What's up, Lou? Ted, there's only one guy in your school. <laughs> you think the rest of them are out sick? <laughs> And Lawrence Luckinbill is also another one. He's, he's one of Mary's terrible boyfriends, the one who has that mean that mean kid. Oh, man, I didn't make either of those connections. Okay, cool. So it's it's pretty cool. So those who stuck to theater did okay. Uh, Keith Prentice made a career in Summerstock, and Frederick Combs moved to Los Angeles to found the L.A. Actors Lab. But for those working in film and television, eventually things started to slide. Peter White was told to take Boys in the Band off his resume if he wanted a career in soaps. And Reuben Green distanced himself from the production, at one point dropping out of contact with everyone involved. In a rare interview from the mid-90s, he told a reporter, I think there was too much emphasis on the self-destructiveness of some of the characters. To me, the play is more about the cry for truth and inclusion. The other day I told Mark that I'm still waiting to see the definitive production of this play. So he wasn't terribly happy with the movie. So Robert Latourneau struggled the most. The roles he was offered involved all the objectification, but none of the depth. And by 1980, he was doing cabaret acts between shows in a porno theater. He believed that Boys in the Band ruined his life. Basically, uh, he turned to drugs and escorting and he ultimately served a sentence for assault at Rikers Island. What happened to him is enormously sad, not only because that degradation is tragic, but because he was so popular. Everybody adored him. He was an incredibly, really warm and, and gentle person. And, you know, Leonard Fry's nephew talked about how he has childhood memories of, of Bob Latourneau taking him to the beach and... He had a really interesting life for somebody who, you know, was born a little gay boy in Missouri. Augusto Machado, the performance artist, actually ended up getting involved with Jackie Curtis, the playwright, and Andy Warhol's Pioneer Without a Frontier. She's one of the Warhol superstars. Because Bob lived in Machado's building and Jackie was a stalker. And so it's kind of a, an interesting story about how Robert Latourneau is like at the epicenter of this whole world of culture in New York City, but because of this play really can't connect with any of it beyond it, even though people love him and they want to help him out. It's kind of a cautionary tale about how gay people flee the cities in search of something and they oftentimes find much more than what they bargained for. Um, in Cliff Gorman's words, uh, he held out big dreams of a comeback, but he always seemed to get screwed around. He was loved by a lot of people and he was dumped by a lot of people. So he had a very rough life after, after the movie was made. Mark Crowley and Natalie Wood's complicated and loving relationship ended with her death in 1981, dealing Crowley a major emotional and psychological blow. And, of course, there's yet another new crisis on the horizon as we enter the 80s. Crowley was devastated by the passing of Howard Jeffrey, the friend whose party invitation, low those many years ago, had inspired the crowning achievement of Crowley's professional life. And then Jeffrey was just one of many AIDS fatalities associated with the boys in the band. The play's producer, Richard Barnes, director Robert Moore, had died a few years prior. In 1986, Robert Latourneau became the first member of the cast to die. By 1993, all five gay actors, Latourneau, Leonard Fry, Frederick Combs, Keith Prentice, and Kenneth Nelson, were gone. But the bonds that had been forged during the Boys in the Band's tumultuous run proved really strong, and it was Cliff Gorman and his wife who tended to Robert Latourneau as he lay dying. They were still really important in each other's life, and that's not true of really any other play or movie that you're going to come across. These are, these are lifelong relationships that came out of this. 
Gorman himself, I think, had a really difficult relationship with the play. He won an Obie for playing Emery, and it was kind of a blessing and a curse. Uh, some people might think that it cost him the role as Lenny Bruce in, in the film version of the play um, that he won the Tony for. He did kind of later recoup the part as kind of like a sideways interpretation of Lenny in All That Jazz from 1979, where he plays a character very obviously based on Lenny. I'm really fond of Gorman as an actor, and I think it's sad that his career was, out of all those in the cast who were major actors, probably the most dogged by the success of the boys in the band, because producers and casting directors thought of him as Emery. And so he spent the most promising years of his career trying to break back into heterosexual roles. And I'm not really the kind of person who typically like pities straight actors for playing gay and finding their options limited, but this is a point in time where obviously playing a role like Emery is a huge risk. And the character so closely aligns with gay stereotypes, yet thanks to Gorman's performance has such texture and tenderness that I understand why audiences thought that he had to be gay and he had to be playing himself. Because so few straight actors then or since have played a gay character with such reverence and depth as he did. And I think that's frankly because very few straight actors respect gay people or gay art beyond his status as a resume builder. So I can't blame him for being bitter about the boys in the band uh, up until the point when he died in 2002. And I think he was really one of the really unique and unheralded talents of this generation. I mean, if you like compare his treatment with, say, Matthew McConaughey's performance in Dallas Buyers Club. It's another straight man who's lauded for his performance um, in that movie. Um, And it's like, yeah, it goes to show how much time has changed. But like also then, um, like it was was never going to be a risk for Matthew McConaughey. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't any act of bravery that made him take that part, um, which I think is the key difference and definitely something that reflects better on Cliff than it would on Matthew McConaughey. Also, Matthew McConaughey's just shit. We hate Matthew McConaughey and we hate Jared Leto we hate everyone involved. Yes. Um, I definitely, I did want to ask you your thoughts on the upcoming Oh my God, I know. I hate Ryan Murphy. (laughs) Because I love the first season of Glee and then everything went to shit. But I think it was really cool that he was able to take this play and Edward Albee, again, backed this play with the demand that it never make it to Broadway because he didn't want people to be poisoned by it. And the fact that Ryan Murphy was willing to kind of dredge it up out of theater history and put it back out there, I think is really cool. Now, I'm not in love with the casting. Uh, Jim Parsons, excuse me, is no Kenneth Nelson. He never will be. But I am interested to see when it's released on Netflix this year. I want to see it. And I hope that maybe it'll stir some interest in the classic version. Yeah, I think it's definitely um, good to see. And I think it's, I guess, an important step that the cast is all openly gay. But I think it's also very telling of the time that they can be all openly gay and like it's not going to be detrimental to them as a career, which then makes you think about the original and how important that was for that to happen um, at the time that it did, uh, further cementing it as really this incredible avant-garde act of bravery. And I think to me, the claims that are, oh, look, it's the first time this is going to be, you know, all openly gay cast. It's like, yep, that's a great achievement. But like, it doesn't mean that we can then dismiss the original version because these people were, you know, the people who were gay at the time had to experience possibly the most oppressive horrifying times to be a gay person and then lost their lives to that struggle. So I think that's just an important thing to remember, like to not discount the original. 
Yeah. Well, as of today, uh, now that Mark Crowley's dead, honestly, uh, the only people I think alive who are majorly associated with, with the play, not so much the movie, but with the play, are Peter White, Lawrence Luck, and Bill and Ruben Green. They're the only ones left. And Green is still not, I guess, willing to talk about it. And I, I don't blame him. I can see how playing Bernard would have made maybe a detrimental impact on his life. I'm not going to dismiss that as, as a black actor at this point in time. Playing a black actor in a very white Hollywood playing a gay character, I, I, don't, I don't blame him for maybe being disappointed with how the whole thing turned out. But Peter White and Lawrence Leckenbull have become very strong advocates for the movie. And for the people who are no longer here to discuss it, when the revival, when it won that Tony Award, Best Revival Play or whatever, and Crowley went up there to accept it, and he thanked the original cast, he had spoken to Luck and Bill right before that, and he'd asked, and they spoke for hours, and Luck and Bill just told him all these stories about what it was like for the group of them taking this play every single night, being on the road, filming it, and about the relationships between them and what a crucial point it was in their lives and the bonds that they formed out of it and how they had to rely on each other at a time when it was a very scary thing to do. And um, I love them all very much. And also, I think I once saw Lawrence Luck and Bill <laughs> at the <laughs> Southwest fuck? Diner in Boulder City, Nevada, of all the places in the world. And you know why? Because Lawrence Luck and Bill is married to Lucy Arnaz oh. and Desi Jr. lives in Boulder City. <laughs> I am almost convinced, like 99.9% sure. So... Florence Luckenbill's out there. Hit me up. Also, he posted some crazy rant on like Facebook the other day about how Trump is a bastard and how he hopes Melania kills him. I just, I, I, <laughs> I love, I love, it's my squad. What can I say? Now it's interesting that we can have all these movies, but I think the same issues that dog this movie are the same issues that we see even in modern movies that are really praised. Like I, I saw um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire recently and that same idea of like, you know, this is the only woman that she's ever going to be able to love because there is no other access to any other woman and she's cut off from the rest of the world or something like God's Own Country, which is kind of the reverse of that. It's more like we can be isolated, but all it takes is one person for you to get over your own insecurities and then you can have a powerful, positive relationship in a way that society has denied you previously. I think these movies still reflect the same issues that are in Boys in the Band. And one playwright, can't remember his name, he's an important playwright, but he said that um, he was talking to Mark Crowley in the 90s and he said that he talks to men his own age in their 40s and they're like, oh, I have nothing in common with the characters in the Boys in the Band, blah, blah. But he talked to young men in their 20s in the 90s and they said, these are like all my friends and everyone I know. So these are recurring kind of cyclical issues with these insecurities and the sense of rootlessness. And um, I think it's a powerful movie that continues to be relevant over time. And so I wanted to close with just one of my favorite things that's really ever been said. Uh, I think it's a really good summary from somebody who, who lived through it. Uh, Peter Felicia wrote this. He said that the main reason why the characters and the boys in the band are miserable is because the straight world of old made them that way. If people in the 40s, 50s, and 60s had been tolerant, these guys wouldn't have turned out as they did. I saw the boys in the band countless times way back when, and believe me, plenty of men in the audience were weeping openly. It's not the story of today's gays, but it certainly was the story of yesteryears. How could the 1968 production have set a then record high ticket price of $10 when Broadway plays were still charging $6.90 and run 1,000 performances if it weren't telling a story that resonated and rang true? I also believe that one reason that Stonewall and gay rights happened, not the only reason, mind you, but one reason is because of this play. After gays saw the boys in the band, they no longer would settle for thinking of themselves as pathetic and wouldn't be perceived as such any longer. Now that Michael and his friends had brought their feelings out of the closet, this new generation would dare to be different. And just as some whites' views of blacks changed after seeing a raisin in the sun, 
So too did the outlook of many straights after they saw the boys in the band. Some whom I personally know felt terrible and I saw this happen actually changed the way they treated gays. Uh, so this is a play to be cherished for what it did. And that's how I feel about The Boys in the Band, which is my favorite movie made outside the confines of the classic studio system. A very important movie in my journey as a gay person. And I think a very important movie in general for anyone who sees it, unless you are a homophobe. In which case, how are you at the end of this episode? <laughs> Shouldn't you have already left us a one-star review? How are you listening to this podcast? How are you, you listening know? to this podcast? I reiterate, Gene Raymond and Buddy Rogers did the nasty on that ship out in the middle of the Atlantic in the year of our Lord, 1936. And that's all I have to say about that. No, I would just say I agree. I had never seen this movie. I really didn't know what I was getting into, aside from, like, I guess having seen The Celluloid Closet when I was, like, 15 and kind of having a, a very vague idea of what it was about. But um, I think it's a very captivating and fascinating movie, and obviously it uh an interesting and important historical artifact. And so if you haven't seen it, I don't know how you made it through this entire episode. I think you should have seen it first, but I would say go watch it. Go watch it, everybody. Oh, and, you know, since coronavirus is, is out there and it's, it's ravaging a lot of communities, I would like to suggest that if anyone has extra funds that they would like to unburden themselves of um i would like to suggest a donation to project angel food which is an organization here in los angeles that provides meals gifts and emotional support to people with serious illnesses many of whom are homebound and at elevated risk of complications from the coronavirus it is including angelinos living with hiv aids project angel food was established to help protect people in california living with aids at a time when that was not a priority for anyone else and without project angel food a lot of those people probably wouldn't have survived so um i'd also like to ask that anyone listening uh check in on seniors or disabled people or anyone else they know who might be struggling right now and to advocate for yourself and each other. Yeah, even just your friends, reaching out to them, making sure they're okay, because it is a lot to cope with. Even just your bros. But don't tell them that they're ugly <laughs> and you <laughs> hope they kill themselves. <laughs> don't be Michael. Yeah. Don't do that. It's not nice. It's not nice. Maybe just, like, put that on the, on the back burner for now. Um, Bring that out after this whole thing's over. Yeah. Michael would not have survived social distancing because he would need somebody to bully all the time. It's a good thing. Oh, but he had his scarf. He could have used that as a mask. Oh, that's so. so true. He could have just, he could have gone up to Donald's house in the Hamptons and be like, and another thing. Anyway. Imagine being in fucking quarantine <laughs> with the boys in the band, you know? <laughs> oh my god, what a nightmare. As usual, you can uh, find us on Twitter and Instagram at BasketPod. Please let us know what you think. Even just let us know you're there. That'd be great. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to this podcast because it really does help a lot, I assume, because somehow people are finding this um, and we haven't told them personally. So just uh, keep keep washing those hands. Keep your distance from people. Wearing gloves to the supermarket is not the best idea if you're going to put them in your mouth. And yeah, thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay sanitized. I just want to be pure. What the hell is this? Oh shit, I think it's hand sanitizer. Hmm? Hand sanitizer? Where's it going? Frank? Uh, why is there hand sanitizer all over the floor? What was in here? Oh! <gasps> Frank? Oh my god. What the hell did you do to yourself? Wanna be pure. Bye bye. bye. See you soon. Bye. bye.
He gets the wrong pass, the wrong coupon, the wrong pawn. Don't say wrong pawn ever wrong again. Pawn. <laughs> wrong pawn. Oh, I don't like that. What could you redeem a wrong pawn for? A weenie will. A weenie will. A trip to Mel Gibson's house. <laughs> Do you mean Jack Nicholson? You mean Jack Nicholson? I'm gonna Google Mickey Rooney, Mel Gibson, and make sure I'm not losing my mind. Mel Gibson. Yeah. Oh, okay. You know, actually, here we go. Um, Candace is reworking the Wikipedia. I know. It's, 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 it's an article from the Financial Times. Okay, I'm gonna read this to you. Okay. Rooney looks at me as if to say, is that a question? But Jan nods. I'm always singing, I say. She nods approvingly. The mood softens and Rooney becomes quite cheery. What's that film we love with Errol Flynn? And he mimes a bow and arrow action. Oh, we love that film, Robin Hood. He was a true star. There will never be another swashbuckler like him. Rooney faces me squarely. Who, squash, who swashbuckles today like Errol? Johnny Depp is a swashbuckler, says Rooney. Mel Gibson? Question mark. He swashbuckled? Question mark. Wrong. He's got freaking brain. Wrong freaking <laughs> and I. We're like, um, <laughs> freaking brain. We're like, uh, Ray Meland and Rosie Greer in, uh, the movie where they got two heads. So that's me, Frank and William Freakin. What do the kids call them? The ones who say that they have multiple personalities? Headmate? Is that what they call them? It's a thing, like, where kids on Tumblr will be like, you know, I'm me, but I'm also, like, I share my brain with, like, Kin? Severus Snape. Kin. 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 Yeah, not most worst. My, 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 my head, headmate Mickey Rooney. My, my <laughs> head, I got two headmates, Mickey Rooney and William Friedkin, and we are in turmoil. Okay, <laughs> we're really struggling. 